0: BBC
1: Radio 5 Live. Was it your fault? Yes. Okay. Right. So you're not blaming anyone else. <laughs> no. Okay. I'm just. Well, I can try, but I don't think it'll get very far. Okay. Why would I be blaming anybody? Well, no, but well, because parceling and apportioning blame is a, you know, a favourite pastime, not of you, but just no. of anyone. You know. I I was supposed to see Fantastic Beast today. And I didn't, <clears throat> because of incompetence. So I have to see it next week. But obviously I have to see it before Eddie
2: and Catherine. Eddie
1: Red, maybe. Yes. As, as the Guardian for That thing about Blame, I did... Um Last night I did this thing, I, I fulfilled a childhood dream, which was that I met Henry Priestman for the first time. Oh, right. Yeah, no, it was... I, you, have you met him before with the Christians? or Probably you, you were, did, back in the hot Rock in 80s, yeah. when the Christians were... They were the big thing? When you while. were, yeah, tippity-top, top of the pops, mate. That's right. And... Um, what was that noise? It's the, you know, the noise of uh, Smashy and Nicey doing This Is Backman Turner Overdrive. Uh in America, they had like, a fader. opening a fader. Well no, but it's on there you know when Smash I Nice the there was like a whole big lever, wasn't it? Opening a fader, yeah. Fine. Okay. So I was obsessed with the with yachts when I was a kid and um and well, I actual yachts. No, the band yachts. Oh I see, it's not who, no, most people will know. That's I've tr- no, true. but I've tried to introduce you to the wonders of them before and you've you've proved very resistant despite the fact that you um you actually like the Christians. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, uh I had through the miracle of, of, of the internet Henry Priestman had got in touch and said, I read in a book that you called yourself Henry when you were in Manchester because of me. I know everyone's heard this story, but, but there we go. It's never uh, stopped you. It no, moment. it hasn't. And, and I said, yes, this is true. And so we, we ended up sort of having a sort of virtual friendship. And then I ended up playing something on his record and he ended up playing something on record, but we'd never met. And then last night, he was doing a thing at, the, at this club in Camden that you said, oh, you're quite right, people do walk in from beside the stage. Yeah, it's very weird very unusual. It is very odd, isn't it? You're, you're arriving late I know. join just, us. Somebody, somebody literally comes in beside you. And so I met him. I said that I would play bass on a couple of songs. And so I was quite nervous because they've got like, you know, because I was playing an electric bass. I was cheating. I was playing an electric bass. The problem with electric bass is if you play a wrong note, people can hear it. If you play an upright bass, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, you, it's all woof. It's a... It's all, but electric bass actually got notes on it. And I was worried about, you know, playing the wrong notes. And Henry Priestman said the thing. He said, don't worry. He said, just, you know, just blame somebody else. And I said, how do he said, but, you know." And he did the, the musician. It's true that what you do, you're playing in a band, you play the wrong note. What you do is you look very sternly at the person sitting next to you, and then everyone thinks it was their fault. Although the person sitting next to me was the drummer, so it can't possibly it can be, be his fault. But you could the... do the Eric Morcom line about no, they're the right notes. Right notes in all the I'm not, but not necessarily in all the right order. But that is that's the blame apportioning thing, is do something wrong and then look at the person standing next to you and frown at them. Okay. Well if... I didn't get to the right screening because of a diary clash, looks itself. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so you have no one but yourself to look at sternly. Correct. But I am looking forward to seeing it already. What was the diary clash? Uh, well, the diary clash was I should have been at the screening, whereas actually I was writing. Oh, so it wasn't a diary clash. You literally just forgot. It's just an easier way of saying it, because I thought it was next week. It's yeah, no, really very interesting. No, but that's not a diary clash, Simon. A diary clash is when it was you... was just it, a neat way of expressing that I didn't get to the screening. Yeah, but you're you, but, you, you, just but just you were trying to apportion blame by saying it was a diary clash. I it was don't... a diary clash. I had, I had many different things going on, but you didn't. You had either nothing or it, and you did nothing. So in the world of apportioning blame, yeah. I think I was blaming myself. That's right. That's... Yeah, but at the same time, <clears throat> you were also sort of trying to create a, a, a ruse whereby, oh, it didn't happen because I had a diary clash. Let me know when you're finished, and I'll just carry on. I can tell you more about yachts. Mark Herman was there. I did a blog about it. Mark Herman, who made Brassed Off. And I had the, because he's, turns out he's great friends with Henry Priestman. And so we started talking about Brastoff. Off. We filmed this blog. We had to film it in the, in the men's because it was the only place in the whole place. Because it's tiny. That place is tiny. And it was the only place that was quiet. So anyway, I talked to Mark Herman about, about Brastoff Off and reminded him that it was a Radio 1 uh, movie of the month screening. And he said he'd never been prouder. Have you, have you finished? All right. Okay. Just take some listeners' correspondence. To... This is gold. This is Radio Gold. Is it? Well, <clears throat> should we move on with our listeners' correspondence section? If you feel you absolutely must. Yes. Unless you've got any other showbiz anecdotes from your top night at the Green Note in Camden. No, I haven't. But I was I, okay. <clears throat> no. But I met somebody I've I've been really fixated about since I was a kid, and it was very exciting, and he was really nice. Uh, dear Mark and Lard, says someone who's signed it, not <laughs> Nigel Thornbury from Bath. Mark and Lard, I'm writing to ask if you can welcome my daughter as a fully-fledged member of the church after a somewhat eventful introduction to entertainment yesterday evening. Right. Said daughter is approaching her teenagerdom and I'm delighted to say has taken on my love of film over the last year in joint cinema visits and home movie nights of films including Amadeus, The Meg, now referred to as Chomp, Edward Scissorhands, The Goonies, Jurassic World and Isle of Dogs. With this in mind, I thought that yesterday evening would be a good time to induct her into the church. She has been a fan of confessions on the other side uh, when heard on the occasional school run. So a nervous car journey to the doctor's surgery for a checkup on a painful knee seemed like a good time to use yours and the good doctor's dulcet tones to put her mind to rest, especially as I knew you were reviewing two films she was eager to see, Bohemian Rhapsody and The Nutcracker and The Four Tops. Yeah. Good joke. Luckily, the plan worked. She was <laughs> chuckling away at the wittering, especially the line about Freddie Mercury's Wikipedia entry, which was a huge relief as upon arrival, it soon became apparent that the checkup involved something a little more serious and several hours were spent in A&E where x-rays and further investigations were required. The first time for her in such a situation, and me on the parental side of it, was kept calm with explanations of where Tinkety Tonk came from, why the top ten usually starts at number 37, who Jason Isaacs actually is, whether his films are any good, whether Simon can actually remember any films Mark has ever reviewed... Ever. ..and the ongoing saga of the Missing Podcast Award, all of which kept her smiling, so much so that on being discharged three hours later with a small fracture of the kneecap, ouch. Yeah, that does sound very painful. She even waved off the receptionist with a cheery Tinkety Tonk down with the Nazis. Excellent. What sealed the deal, however, was on getting back into the car, she asked to listen to the podcast from the start, because we'd skipped to the top ten originally. Happy that this was a sign that we'd fast-tracked a convert into the church, I readily agreed, somewhat forgetting the conversation that was to come. I don't know if you remember this, having previously listened to this part on my Monday morning commute. Sure enough, halfway home, a tired and emotional daughter and father, sat in silence as the conversation led to Nigel Thornbury, and could sense both bottom lips starting to wobble as you played Paul Simon's father and daughter. Needless to say, she is now a committed member of the congregation and even planning more road trips, hopefully not involving A&E next time uh, for the next, (coughs) excuse me, for next weekend, (coughs) so that we can listen to the next podcast and has asked whether she's old enough to go on the cruise. I think she is, isn't she? Yeah. What is the age limit? Well, it's 12a, isn't it? 12A, but then, so that's parental guidance. Parental really, guidance. yeah, it? that's what yeah, I mean. Okay. So thank you both for the distractions on what could have been a very nervous evening. And a huge thank you and a tinkety-tonk to the staff of Bath's Royal United Hospital, who may well be listening, from Not Nigel Thornbury. Well, it's nice to know that we can help. We're like, we should be available on the NHS. We should be available on prescription. We we help in operations. It's not the first time you've come up with that. We bring back from the dead. I mean, there is nothing we could... We should write a book about it. We should... But basically, the Department of Medicine, they should... Whatever they are. (laughs) The Department... They should hire us. I mean, the Department of Health. Yeah, they should hire us and put us in charge, and we'd sort everything out. Yes. That Um, sounded exactly like that. Do you remember that Monty Python sketch? You know, next week, we'll tell you how to cure all all known diseases. How do you... Well, firstly, you remember this no it was like a children's tv program and now he never says how to how to blow the flute how do you play the flute well you blow in one end and move your fingers up and down the other end that's marvelous fabulous you don't remember this no. it's a monty python sketch and then he says and well, now we're going to teach you how to how to cure all known illnesses so how do you cure all well firstly you do something jolly clever and then when you've jolly well got everyone's attention you tell them what to do that's probably that's my marvelous michael palin and graham Chapman, probably i would think <laughs> um But I don't remember it. I think it's John Cleese and Graham Chapman. Okay, David Burton. uh, Dear Nigel and Cordelia Thornbury, I'd like to report an incident of Wilfs, which is Wittetainment-induced lacrimonious father syndrome, after the 2nd of November show, when hearing Father and Daughter by Paul Simon, which has caused us a few problems playing that last week. In 2002, a family summer holiday outing with my wife Karen and David, Children James, then age seven, and Sarah, age five, we went to see the wild Thornburys movie. Left a legacy of love for this song because of the strong father daughter theme. Yeah, in recent years, Sarah and I have driven to university inspections, Saracens rugby matches, music lessons, gymnastic events, and geography field trips. Where playing this song never fails to, re- in- to induce tears of happiness and love in us both. Mm-hmm. Sarah's now an employed graduate, setting off on her career away from home, and I'm very proud of her. Paul Simon's father and daughter came on whilst I was driving to work. This is us now. Yes. Whereupon I glanced sideways at the empty passenger seat where Sarah frequently sat. Remembering those teary moments we shared in that same spot in times past brought an acute case of wilfs, blub and sniffle Aww. so to sarah and lester as long as one and one is two there could never be a father who loves his daughter more than i love you thank you simon for picking this song it made my day very happy there's david burton you should do an again. all re- all request radio show i should
2: i should <laughs> what
1: are you going to say? again again we are hell i just feel as though we're helping the health of everybody yes i just can i ask are you building up to something with this are you about to invoice somebody for it no, I just think we should go into practice. Yeah. because Oh, yes, because we're both doctors, although I'm now professor. Except you're not. Except I am. I am as much a professor as you are a doctor. That is also true. That is absolutely a, true. I will agree on that one. Callum Sires, dear Nigel and bro, with all the mentions of the Wild Thornburys and especially people's dads being renamed Nigel in honour of the patriarch of the Thornbury family, perhaps this is a good excuse for Mark to review the movie spin-off of the show as a podcast extra. I don't want to oversell the movie too much, but it's a cheerful, positive family film with environmentalist themes and an excellent soundtrack. The comparisons to Nigel from listeners really is an honour, as he's such a good example of a parent in a family film and his catchphrase, smashing, is infectious in its positivity. That's not really a catchphrase. It's more of a word. A word he says a lot. Given that Mark says he doesn't remember reviewing the movie or even seeing it, his opinion could put a smile on the heart of the adults who grew up with this show and their Nigel fathers. That's not a bad thing. I mean, I know you're busy and Who is it who plays, I'm just looking this up, Thornberry, because I don't remember seeing it. Um, the Wild Thornberry. Wild Thornberry. movie, you know, yeah, thank you. A man looking up Tim, things yeah, on the internet. No, who fine, Tim Curry and Rupert Everett, right, as uh, voices, apparently. So, uh, Nigel is played by Tim Curry. Well. There we go. So that, in that case, so that would definitely worth it, because anything, I love Tim Curry. I think we should, well, you could either find it online somewhere or we could get a copy yeah. And yes. you And watch it and review it. Yeah. Uh, fine. I tell you what. If you get me a copy, I will review it. Tim Curry had an album once called "Read My Lips." Did he? Was it any good? I didn't listen to it. I just thought it was, you know, it was, a, it was, it was quite a good pun because because his, you know, his his mouth is so famously expressive. On All Request Friday, <clears throat> on mm-hmm. the other side, um, we often get asked for the Time Warp. Really? Yes. Okay. On a re- on a very, very regular basis. Although Time Warp is not the best song in Rocky Horror by quite some distance. But that's the one we get asked okay, for. Okay, sure. And the definitive version is by Tim Curry. But there are yeah. so many other versions in there yeah, we always have to fight. So, no, 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 you don't want the version by Damien. You don't want the this version. You want this. Then you play the Tim Curry and everyone goes, yeah, 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 you want. No, but it's oh, not right. Tim Curry, the Time Warp. It's, um, it's not. Tim Curry's not in it. In the Time Warp, it's Riff Raff and uh, Magenta. It's not time. Tim Curry doesn't turn up until Sweet Transvestite. Well, he's credited on the thing. So if it's if it's got it's Tim not, Curry on okay, the okay, thing, you think about it. In the Time Warp, Frankenfurter hasn't turned up yet. The Time I, Warp it it's, starts with it's Raff and Magenta and uh, you Richard know, O'Brien. Yeah, Richard O'Brien exactly, and Patricia Quinn and Little Nell. You and then everything. Tim Curry doesn't come down in the elevator until afterwards. On the computer. Well, it's wrong. No, no, no. I'm just saying on the computer. If it says Time Warp, yeah, Tim Curry. That's the version that you play. I'm just saying if no, you are am just saying, he's not on it. But if it says it's unless there's confusing. a version of it which he did separately. But in Rocky Horror Show, Tim Curry doesn't sing "Time Walk" because he hasn't turned up. There yet. you go. Anyway, it's a very very exciting topic, and we need to explore later. Yeah. In other, in a, in how many a, times have you seen Rocky Horror? Once. Oh, oh, that was a short conversation. Well, how many times would you like me to have seen it? A hundred. No, once. I, you never felt the need to go back and join in and do all the stuff? You didn't go to Baker Street, take rice and water pistols? Manifestly not. Okay. You're a real killjoy sometimes. Anyway, on with the show. Well, it's five minutes past two, and if you have the BBC Sounds app, the best thing that you can do with it is make sure that you listen to this show, either live or get the podcast later. Don't you think? I mean, I'm just saying that that's off the top of my corporate head. Yes, the only thing is... In order for anyone to hear that, they must already be listening to this show. Well, yes, it's just another way of listening, I suppose, if you find that your circumstances have changed. Have you downloaded the app? Of course, it was one of the first things I did when and, I was told about it. And do, are you are you quite app friendly? I am an app friendly person. It's almost as I would just say it's almost as, as good as the you're other. A, way you're to an, an app, app. Town, tempo woman. Very good. That's <laughs> that's, that's that's memorable. <laughs> The iWitter app is my favourite, obviously, but yes, the, the BBC but... Sounds app is is very close behind. Oh. Uh, also, uh, another very good app, while a very good podcast while you're there, not as good as this one, yeah. obviously, or Testament Go on. Special, or the Archers. The Rat Line, which is really good, which is a Radio 4 one. Uh, and the Rat Line is the... It's done by Philippe Sands, and it's tracing... It's basically a Nazi hunting uh, story, and the Rat Line is the the name that was given to the, the route that Nazis took when they were leaving... Germany and trying to get Argentina. Anyway, I'm just okay. just a recommendation no, that's for very good. And that's, all those hours that you and have. And that will be off. on the BBC Sounds app? It will. Very nice and handsome it looks too. Excellent. What the app does? <sighs> Look, that's, that's a, a career extending two minutes. That. Well done. We are still in the advert. I mean, it is blink and you'll miss it. But somebody said to me the other day, oh, I saw you in that advert. We're all, I'm always thinking we're going to get edited out, but it'd be very, very difficult because it's like a continuous sort of story yeah. being told. Yeah, they can't they, they can't take us out because we are the crucial link between... I had no words at all. I had to make up yeah, yeah, yeah as my line. Yeah. Because I had I was just going to stand there like an idiot. Like Jason is, to be honest. <laughs> the, Jason, the, the Jason part is almost a subliminal cut. I mean, Captain Howdy is in The Exorcist more than Jason is in that there thing. Worth watching again and again. Uh, James Adamson. Yes. Uh, dear fake professor and fake doctor, like many members of the congregation, my consciousness is ingrained with the various references and in-jokes from the show. And these can manifest themselves in odd ways during office hours. Recently, a meeting about various potential developments in IT was livened up when someone queried the rather fanciful phrase quantum computing, and a colleague piped up... It's quantum, baby. The blank stares in the... which is an amazing impression. (laughs) The blank stares in the room only became blanker when I said hello to Jason Isaacs, even though he was clearly absent from the proceedings. I hadn't any idea that my colleague was a fellow member of the church, on discussing it afterwards, he said he hadn't accessed the Handy-Eye because he felt the two of you were financially benefiting from it quite enough already. Which is a fair point. A more troubling example of your flagship programme creeping into the world of work was this week, when in an all-day session about some software we need for our project, one of the principal speakers sounded exactly like Werner Herzog. Brilliant. Remind us how he sounds in your version. Werner is, uh, you know, it is not a significant bullet. And, uh, I, you know, you stare into the abyss and the abyss looks back into you and says, oh, I don't like the look of that at all. But actually, our principal speaker didn't sound like Mark or Werner Herzog. He sounded like substitute teacher Sanjeev, <laughs> eerie impersonation of Werner Herzog. While it was a welcome distraction from a very dry session to his sonorous but unnerving tones, it did mean that in that soporific period just after lunch, I found myself drifting a little bit and imagining Herr Herzog taking over the project and directing our efforts with quotes like...
2: Go right on the roundabout. Turn around when possible. You are driving into the abyss. Watch out for the squirrel. You have reached your destination. Good morning, Paddington. That's
1: so much better than that's mine. Really, that is anyway. really... Because he gets all the, the consonants right. That's That's why he's a top... Actor performer, yeah. and we're just radio schlubs. So, uh, and that was Sanjeev, and he was because the joke was Werner Herzog sat now. That's the one. Yeah. Anyway, uh, anyway. So, James, thank you very much indeed uh, for that. Was really- can we play it again? I'm sorry because which was, one? The, just the the, the 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 Sanjeev just once more because it was really funny.
2: Go, on. Go right on the roundabout. <laughs> Turn around when possible. You are driving into the abyss. <laughs> Watch out for the squirrel! You have reached your destination. Good morning, Paddington.
1: My favourite bit of that is where he says squirrel. Squirrel. And like he's lost. He's lost the the the, the, uh, the, the vowel at the end. So he's just sort of made it into one one syllable. It's just genius. Perfect. Thanks, Angie. Um Dear, sexy and beast, can this be for us? Anyway, it's from David and Terry. I, I, I'm Beast, incidentally. Would you be so kind as to give a shout out or a WhatsApp or a what's up to myself and my new wife, as we should be listening to the show uh, driving back from our weekend away in Devon, where we ran off to get married without telling anybody? Uh, it was Gretna Green that you ran off to get married. No. We've been together for ten years, and although I've uh, been a member of the church for the majority of the time, it took me quite a while to convert my good lady to the church, about four years, to be honest. With this finally out of the way, I then asked her to marry me, despite her thinking that the Transformer movies are, quote, quite good. Quite good. Because you can imagine that might loom a little large. I know, I know. But, you know, love is accepting other people's wrong opinions. Uh, P.S. Could you please say hello to baby Isaac, who is probably asleep in the back? Um, Mr and Mrs Bell. Hey, I am right in thinking that people used to run away to Gretna Green, aren't I? Yes. And Because the, the, the point was, once you went north of the border, you could get married without your parents' permission. Is that what it was? And Gretna Green just happened to be the first place that you got to if you went over the border. Pretty much. I mean, that's where Moonlighting by Leo Sayer comes from. Really? Yes. Gretna Green. Well, that's where they're running to. They're running from Worthing, on the south coast, because there are various references to Montague Street and the Mexican discotheque. Right. To Gretna Green. Does it actually say Gretna Green? It does. They're only five miles from Gretna something. So there's a reference to Gretna in there. So Wow. We play that a Your knowledge lanes, right? of pop is just... Just as well, really. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, ju- uh, right. So a couple of uh, emails about widows, because pe- some people would have done exactly the same as I do. I should have been paying more attention, tried to find widows at the weekend, and yeah. you know, obviously it came out on Tuesday. Yes. I think I said that. If I didn't, I apologize. No, you absolutely I don't. I think I did. You absolutely did, I'm sure. Josh from Birmingham uh, on with us. I was just mentioning it because it's not in the top ten. No, because it's is technically it- it's having its opening weekend. Because the way it works is if you open I and I've said this before, if, you'd open, if you open Tuesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, rolls into the opening weekend. So next week it'll be number one. Yes, that's the theory. Anyway, people have seen it, clearly. Uh, Josh in Birmingham, it was outstanding. My favourite film of the year so far. The cast, the direction, the script, everything is there. I've always loved Viola Davis and it's like she's the mother figure that wants to look after her three team members. I've always found Elizabeth... Is it Debicki or Debitchi? I think it's Debicki, but I'm I'm just assuming. I haven't heard anyone officially say it out loud, so I may well be wrong, I usually am. I've always found her interesting from when she appeared in The Man From U.N.C.L.E. and in this she is absolutely incredible. Michelle Rodriguez and Cynthia Erivo do a stunning performance too but Daniel Kalua, for me, wins it, I think. Steve McQueen, director of the brilliant 12 Years a Slave, does it again and Gillian Flynn, scriptwriter for one of my top ten films of the 20th century, Gone Girl never lets me down. I absolutely loved it. My only criticism is that I didn't want it to end. I want to see more films like this. I love it when a film just falls into place. Yeah, very good. However, Steve Oh Mark, really? Yeah. This is very balanced. Expectations were sky high. Yes. After all that it's a masterpiece, yes. five star reviews. Yes. I came out a bit meh. It was a good film in parts, but it was a mess. And as for it being mm. a great feminist film, I couldn't disagree more. Three of the women had hardly any characterization other than I need to sort out a babysitter to do the heist. That's not characterization. In fact, the men were the most developed and most interesting characters, particularly Colin Farrell, which is a very, very definite wrong for this film. Its narrative was a mess. It was a charisma free film. Okay. It was incoherent and so on. It's just That's just wrong. That's literally just like factually wrong. All the way through. Can I say something that one of the. Somebody put on Twitter, somebody who didn't like Bohemian Rhapsody, which I did, um, came up with the pun nothing really matters to meh. That is very good. It's good. Um, We've got my favourite. Review, other than yours, I love all your reviews. well done, nicely saved my favorite review from a listener well done, again. coming up and it 's only eight words, yeah. and you 'll know it when we get there, okay because it 's a work of art, I right. think anyway, the box office top ten at thirty <laughs> Ne passeran yeah which i i I really loved it 's this documentary that we played at the Shetland Film Festival, and there wasn 't a dry eye in the house it 's a tiny release, but it 's really worth checking out if you get a chance it's it 's about how you know, a, a group of workers taking action had consequences that they couldn't possibly imagine in a in, in Chile. And I thought it was it's really good. Michael calling Glasgow. I was glad Mark mentioned I'd pass around on last week's show as I had already booked tickets to take my dad to a Sunday showing at the Glasgow Film Theatre. Oh, great! Having grown up in East Kilbride and having only been made aware of this story over the last few months, it was something I was eagerly anticipating. Philippe Sierra's documentary holds our hand as we walk through the tragic events of Chile's 1973 military coup and shines a light on the actions of a few men thousands of miles away. Actions that had such a profound and far-reaching effect. And that they didn't know it had that that effect at the time, which is what makes it so moving. Mark mentioned last week that there was not a dry eye in the house when it was shown at the Shetland Film Festival, as he has just repeated. I can't account for everyone at the GFT, but if the emotional journey that this film takes you on left anyone with a dry eye, I would be surprised. Ney Passeran is a welcome and timely reminder that despite all that seems wrong with the world, there are good people with good intentions who follow through on their principles and beliefs, whilst we may often feel that our actions are insignificant we can make a difference. It's one of my favourite documentaries and indeed films of the That's last good. few years, and it is challenging Senna at the top of my all-time list. Coincidentally, wow. I cried watching that too. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting. I, I've, I know a couple of people who've been slightly lukewarm about it, No it, but all I can tell you is when we played it at Shetland... It was the it was the runaway hit of the festival, uh, and Michael finishes by saying "Tinkety Tonk and Down with Pinochet, which I think kind of, <laughs> that's really right. kind of works. Uh, at number eighteen is Juliet Naked. So I really liked Juliet Naked. I went into City, you know not really knowing anything about it other than the Nick Hornby connection, and I. I thought it worked really well, this idea that there's uh, this guy who's obsessed with a, with a rock star who made an album and then disappeared and his wife is getting really annoyed with the website that he runs so she writes a rubbish review on it and the next thing is that star gets in touch and says, yeah, you're absolutely right. I thought it was, I thought it was really well played and I laughed all the way through it. I laughed all the way through it. Chris Deeks in Chelmsford. Recently, my wife and I went to see Juliet Naked, had a similar experience of not knowing much about it before we went in. We truly loved it. I was so relieved to hear that Mark really enjoyed it too. Yeah, I did. I couldn't help but draw comparisons to Richard Linklater's Before Trilogy, the philosophical musings on relationships and family, the whirlwind transatlantic romance, the poignancy of its characters' imperfections, the Ethan Hawke... But through the charming and whimsical filter of a Nick Hornby narrative, it managed to be funny, charming and intelligent in a refreshingly light and enjoyable package. The film is my surprise of the year. I had no expectations going in and I walked away feeling better for having seen it. Yeah, you see, that's exactly how I felt about it. I went in expecting nothing and then was really, really delighted by it. Um, Okay, so uh, in the top ten, we've got Peter Liu. So I'll go. Yeah, go ahead. And then you can go. Yeah, sure. Richard McKendrick. Every cliché lovingly achieved. What a tedious experience. Mm. Mike Lee shoving his Wikipedia view of history agonisingly down my throat. Northern working class cliché. Wicked posh blokes cliché. Trouble at mill cliché. reigning moors cliché. At least Lee dressed the magistrates in black so we knew they were baddies. As As for Lee, a filmmaker I have admired... How dare you patronise me? Oh, habeas corpus has been renounced. Quick, put a long and tedious scene where various northern stereotypes explain to me what habeas corpus is. This had all the subtlety and wisdom of an early John Wayne Western. Bad is where black and all the Native Americans are bad. Dreadful. Historically so bad, it made even the darkest hour seem accurate. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> we know true. where Richard is. That's very tough. Um, Steve Connolly, hang I'm on. No, sorry. There's, 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 there's I'm a so, no, here. sorry, there's, go ahead. <clears throat> Steve Connolly. Um, I have become totally immersed in Mike Lee's world coming from and having lived most of my life in Manchester I'm aware of the Peterloo massacre but thinking back as far as my school days I can't remember being taught it which is something we discussed Mm -hmm. last week although I felt the film could have done with some judicious pruning I think I lost count of the amount of times Maxine Peake said something along the lines of what good will that do although I agree (laughs) something has to be done (laughs) when the cavalry charged and the massacre began you felt like you knew these people so well that when the body started falling you had your hand over your mouth Mouth, even though you were aware of what was coming. This yes. is a testament to Mike Lee's slow burn script. Yes. Uh, Zane says, uh, Peterloo is a film that commits to portraying the complexity of its subject matter, but in my opinion, doesn't go quite far enough. Whilst the suffrage movement was never oversimplified and was granted a spectrum of politics, I felt that too much focus was put on the oration of a few revolutionary figures, the refrains of whom became familiar quickly. It would have been interesting to see more of how such movement spreads outside of these staged spaces, since most of this burden was placed on Maxine Peake's character. Although, having said that, I didn't know the story before I saw the film and recommend it fully to anyone who's interested, with a caution for 1800's verbosity. Okay. Um, Sean Scullion. I felt the movie was all over the place. We meet characters who we have no time to connect with, but it was also painfully slow and dull in parts. Half of the film consisted of speech after speech after speech, and the government are turned into unrealistically laughable cartoon characters. Personally, I think the event deserved a better film than a passable slugfest. And finally, from listeners, the eight-word review, which is my Here we go. listener review of the week from Stephen Yeardley okay. on our Facebook page. Okay, Peter Lou, I couldn't escape, but I wanted to. <laughs> now that is perfectly crafted. Okay, that's, Round of applause, is, Stephen Yeardley. Yeah, that is very, very cruel. Well, look, what can I say? I do understand the, um, I understand that the, the complaint about it, you know, it being slow and it taking a long time. And as I was said in my review, I think that I, I experienced that myself as well. But I felt that when we got to the event itself, that everything that had troubled me up until that point worked. So it was almost... I mean, this is a bad way of putting it, but it, it, it's almost like you eat your greens and then you have your pudding. Um, it's like you, you ha- you, th- this stuff is important because if you don't do this groundwork, what happens at the end isn't going to have the impact that it should do. And I do think that that, that, that final movement is really, really powerful cinema. Second thing is uh, there's a lot of accusations that Mike Lee is trading in cliches, and I don't buy that. Um I I just don't think it is cliched. I don't, I think I think there are moments. Um, that comment about Maxine Peake saying, you know, what good will it do? But on the other hand, we must do something. That, that that that's that is that is astute, and it is definitely true that there is a touch of that. But I don't think it's cliched. I think that I think that what it is is it's something that really really takes its time in setting the groundwork. And I mean, even I felt. That you know, there was one meeting too many. There was one voice too many. But what Mightley is trying to do is give you this multitude of voices, all of whom you have heard. From all of whom you have heard. By the time we get to the to the to to, to Peter's Field Square, so um, yeah, I'm sorry that people haven't uh, connected with it as I did, but I I do understand why because I did have those reservations until we got to the end. There is a maxim. The end act of a movie is what you remember, and I was saying about the you know Venom. You know, you come out of Venom and you think, oh, that's just pretty good, but it, you forget that there was a whole lot before it that wasn't. I mean, it's the it's the whole load of Shawshank before you get to the redemption. Thank you. Um, you know, we did that thing a few weeks ago, like a few months ago, about when you see a a, a a film title, you then get a song in your head. Yes. Now it's going to be Peterloo. Yeah, had you not had Couldn't that before? If I wanted to, I had never heard that. Before. Okay, no, somebody. I mean, the, the, the <clears> Mike <throat> Lee doing a do, doing a Mamma Mia joke was it was good. but but that is that is very very sharp. And again, once again, it proves that there is nothing more lethal than a you know a deadly turn of phrase, which is exactly like David Cox saying to me forrest gump on a tractor no matter what the virtues of the movie once you've heard that it's it's not going to matter number nine is slaughterhouse rules which is all over the place there are individual things in slaughterhouse rules that are quite fun um and there are whole sections of it that that don't hang together and it it does look to me like a film that really lost its way in the edit and it's it's clearly not finding an audience henry wilson says caught a showing of slaughterhouse rules last night my local world of cine here in glasgow with a small but very code-compliant audience. <clears throat> Excuse me. Generally agree with a Good Doctor's verdict. It's a bit Tarquin of the Dead without being quite as good as Sean. <laughs> That's good. But despite that, it easily passed the 10 laugh test via some great action scenes, sharp dialogue and engaging performances from Peg, Sheen and the younger cast. Uh, thank you, Henry. And Ryan Warriner, age 23 from Nottinghamshire. He's a screenwriter. I think I agree with everything in Mark's review. I too found the film tonally all over the place. Uh, Edgar Wright is my favourite director and traces of melted Cornetto were all over this. See the whooshing transitions, the scene near the window, the Shaun of the Dead meets the world's end uh, creatures and a few others that move into spoiler territory. I wondered what it would have been in Wright's hands with all due respect to the director of this. However, with all that in mind, I figured if Michael Sheen is having this much fun, then so can I. Yeah. I switched off the screenwriter film critic engine and let the film take me along for the ride. And that's the <clears> level <throat> on which it works, but it is definitely a total shame. And the, and the, the most worrying moments are the moments when exactly, as you said, the, shoom, the bits in which it actually tries to do Edgar Wright. Though somebody said, that's not Edgar Wright, that's Sam Raimi, but it's not. The Sam Raimi thing Is it has a different aesthetic to it. We'll rattle on through okay. the next ones, because you've heard this. Yes. Venom's at eight. First boring, then silly, then fun. Halloween's at seven. I like it, so did you, good old uh, Jamie Lee Curtis owning the franchise. Goosebumps 2 is at 6. Not as good as Goosebumps 1. Johnny English Strikes Again Not as good as any of the other previous Johnny English movies. Small Foot's at 4 Actually much better than the title Sounds and a film with a message snuggled away within all the cartoon japes Uh, At number three, it's Nutcracker and The Four Realms. So I've got some stuff here and you can go. Dion Johnson, I read a lot of mixed reviews before taking my daughter to see this. After watching it, my daughter said it was her new favourite film Good, and she has a very diverse favourite film list. Sarah wanted to see it because she loved Interstellar and this, of course, stars Murph. My conclusion is that this actually is an excellent film despite the mixed reviews and it's far better than many other modern, highly overrated children's films currently out there. Um... Richard Brown Martin in Wellington City. My wife and I attended a, uh, attended a 4DX screening. That's the shaky chair one, right? Oh, okay. The plot seemed somewhat lacking. There wasn't nearly enough Dame Helen or Morgan Freeman, and we were puzzled rather than amused by the cameos of Omid Jalili and Jack Whitehall. In summary, it was forgettable Christmassy fluff, the sort of thing <laughs> I'd usually wait to watch on BBC One in a sprout induced semi slumber <laughs> after Boxing Day That's a good lunch. Uh, Mark Waters, Clara is such a strong character in the film, has such an unforced, female-focused approach that it's a shame that the guy who plays Second Fiddle gets his name on the banner. I know that in the ballet, Clara has her moment of heroism when she throws a slipper at a mouse, but here she is a confident, brave, forthright, highly intelligent young woman who solves problems, wields a sword, kicks enemies down the stairs and commands an army. The only thing this girl needs saving from is her own sadness and naivety making her a relatable and flawed hero too. What is also interesting here is the way the movie manages to be effortless, effortlessly feminist without worrying about being overly feminine. The film heavily features dresses, ribbons, sweets, flowers, fairies and, of course, ballet, but still succeeds in having an empowered female lead in a compelling, if simple, adventure. Very well-written review, although minus one point for using the word relatable. Um, I think that... It is, it, it's it's a film in which you can see that there are two different things going on. I mean, they did the first shoot and then nine months later they did the second shoot at which point Lasse Hallstrom, the original director, wasn't available so Joe Johnson stepped in and in fact there was even another scriptwriter brought in and it does look like a kind of a, a ragtag bag of body parts but some of them I really liked, not least... Kira Knightley as Sugar Plum, who I thought was really funny. And, it, I mean, the film passed the six last test on the basis of Kira Knightley, because, there, you know, she's she's doing this you know, sweet on the outside, but maybe not on the inside performance. And I I thought she was... It really, really tickled me. I thought her performance was great. I think the film is all over the shop. And I think when you look at the production history of it, you go, oh, OK, that makes sense. Do you think if you went with a six-year-old daughter, you would... Feel more warmly. I, mean, I think it'll pretty warmly, but yeah, no. I think if, if your if your six year old daughter loves the film, then great. Then that. I mean, because you know it's it's the Nutcracker, and 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 that's you know that's terrific. I'm I'm I, I never like it when people go to the cinema and have a bad time. I'd much rather people were enthusiastic, and that's great. And also that is target audience. So so great. Uh, nutcracker at three star is born at two. Oh, I just. I want to go again I, because I just loved it so much. I, I, I now everywhere you go, Shallow is playing everywhere. Huge song people walk means. past you in the street, you hear it on their iPod. It's an earworm. It's an absolute earworm. It really Particularly is. Particularly the it? the harmony melody. Song. Yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I just love it. And it looks like it's on course for awards. Although bear in mind, you know, a, a week is a long time in politics, and a couple of days is a very long time in awards. What do you think it would be up for? Best, best actress? picture, best, uh, best director. Well, it's definitely going to win Best Song, isn't it? There's there's no way anything yeah. else is going to come close to Shallow. Um, I think it, it it's got a chance of being up for Best Picture. I think it has a chance of being up for uh, for Best Actress for uh, Lady Gaga. There's an outside chance that um that Bradley Cooper could be up for Best Director, although actually actually probably not because it's quite a strong Best Director field at the moment. So, but I think it, I think it has got a shot at Best Picture. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody is the UK's number one. Yeah, Jordan Wellin. In Boston, Massachusetts. Yeah. As After, po- As opposed <clears throat> to Boston where? Lincolnshire. I stand corrected. Okay. <laughs> After taking a trip to my local cineplex here in Boston to see Bo Rap, I was certain I'd open my podcast app to hear the legendary Mark giving another legendary rant about just how terrible the film is. Didn't get it. To my surprise, and yes, even horror, I was stunned to hear Mark giving the film a pass on nearly every level. Yep. Yeah. As a gay man, I was frankly appalled by the gay erasure throughout the film. Even more offensively, even the film hints... Every time the film hints at Freddie's complex sexuality, it's done so in a leering, finger-wagging way meant to shame him. It's as if the rest of the band were saints for putting up with it, quote, devious ways. The very moment Freddie opens up about his sexuality he's portrayed as being depressed and hostile and from that moment the film continues to punish him for it. Not one iota of the entire thing is believable from the bad lip-syncing to the incomprehensible timeline to its egregious depiction of homosexuality. An insult to Freddie, an insult to his fans... And an insult to good cinema. I've got an, another one. Yeah, but do ahead. you want? But do you want to answer? Well, the, I mean, the I have. You know, I have heard, <clears> and <throat> I do understand the that, that criticism about it. That somehow, what the film does is it sets up a duality whereby uh, heterosexual normality, in inverted commas. Is set aside non-heterosexual chaos, and there is this, this suggestion that there's a you know, and I've heard I have heard that argument, and I do know, um, you know, I have gay friends who who, who found the film very problematic. I have straight friends who found the film problematic on that level. I have to say, I I don't because I didn't think that was what the film was trying to say. I think there's no question that you can read it that way, and I think there is no question that people have read it that way, and that's perfectly fine. I didn't. If I had read it that way. It would have really, you know, changed my opinion of them, but I didn't. I, you know, I, I, I do understand it, but it's not, a, it's not a, it's not a reading that I share. Uh, Laura Hudson, age thirty-seven and a half. Uh, it took precisely one and a half minutes for me to forget that I wasn't actually witnessing Freddie Mercury in front of me. Such was the amazing performance of Rami Malik. Every jaw twitch and arm gesture was sublime perfection. In fact, Malik, Ben Hardy, Gwilym Lee and Joseph Matzello all embodied Queen in a way I wasn't prepared for. And you could tell that the entire cinema felt exactly the same way and were well and truly caught up in the thrill of it. In one blissful moment, I looked across my aisle and saw that all five of us along the way were tapping our feet to the beat together, probably without even realising. I was only four when uh, Live Aid took place, but it was replayed in my home by my father so many times that I know it by heart. And when that moment was featured, I could feel the hairs on my neck prickle and it was all I could do not to leap out of my seat and sing along thank you Laura number one movie is bohemian rhapsody i mean that you know that's that's what happened for me is that it it worked on that on that emotional level and i therefore all the things about the timeline being wrong all the things about the you know the liberties taken i mean not just liberties i mean outright falsifications I, and I, you know, I, was, I was talking about this the other day, about why is it that, I, that I've forgiven that film for things for which I've condemned other films? <clears throat> and the reason is because emotionally it worked. But to refer back to the, the previous email, I mean, that was really, really well argued. And it, cle- you know, it it clearly makes sense. And I do know for a fact that people whose opinions I respect have shared that opinion. And that does give me pause for thought. Um, so I yes, it, it is. It is definitely possible to read that as a completely legitimate reading of the film. It just that isn't how it struck me. Suspiria is out next week, directed by Luca Guadagnino, and who made, of course, Call Me by Your Name. Uh, this film stars Dakota Johnson. Now, I was expecting to talk to both of them together. But yes, a few minutes before we were due to start the interview, uh, we were told that Luca had left the hotel, uh, we're like Elvis. Been. Exactly like Elvis, which is where all the interviews were taking place. Anyway, so what f- follows is my conversation with Dakota on her own after this clip from the film featuring Dakota as Susie Banyan and Tilda Swinton as Madame Blanc.
2: When you dance the dance of another, you make yourself in the image of its
1: creator. You empty yourself so that her work can live
2: within you. Do you understand? Yeah. You're in a company now. You have to find your right place. You have to decide. What is it you want to be for this company? Is it the head?
0: The spine? The sex? The heart? The hands. I want to be this company's hands.
1: And that's a clip from Suspiri. I'm delighted to say that it starred Dakota Johnson is with us. How are you, Dakota? Very nice to see you.
0: I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Uh it's going well. What do you make of uh telling this story so far? Is it different from promoting your other films? Are you are you enjoying the process?
0: I am. It's very interesting to promote this film because typically the person asking the question had just seen the film and their Freaked demeanor out. is a little <laughs> shook up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well that's it that's the intention, isn't it? I mean that's the whole, if you walk out of Suspiria going, well I don't know what well, you know you I, that would be very, very strange because people. It, this is a full-on experience.
0: Yeah, I would rather people have feelings leaving a movie theater than have no feelings. Yeah,
1: tell us what the story is. They may well be familiar, of course, because this is a uh, this is a remake uh, or a cover version, as yeah. Luca, your director, likes to say. <laughs> Just explain the, the story.
0: Well, it's a cover version of Dario Argento's original film Suspiria, that was made in 1977, and it takes place in 1977, and. It's about a young woman who travels from a very intense Mennonite family in Ohio to 70s feminist Berlin and is on a mission to be accepted to the most prestigious dance academy. And she wants to work with Madame Blanc, who's played by Tilda Swinton. And she discovers that it's run by witches.
1: Which you can imagine was quite a shock to her. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is Susie Bunyan, this is, this is your character. What's the significance of the Mennonite background, which we see in, uh, in, in, in flashbacks? But just explain the significance of that.
0: It's such a drastic change from where she ends up. Although if you look at a Mennonite family, it's, it's a lot of women um, nurturing something, taking care of each other, but taking care of this lifestyle, this sort of being in itself. And then even though it's so drastically different from the Dance Academy and from the Marcos Academy, there's a w- bizarre parallel in this group of women nurturing this thing, this something. But it's just in a very different way.
1: Yes. So 1977 is, as you said, it's it's where the original was set. You're still setting it uh, in 1977. Is there a significance to the... Because in in the background, there's a lot of violence. There's Bader Meinhof going on, there are explosions, there's a plane hijack. Is there a significance to that? I mean, because the story that you've outlined could have been set almost anywhere and in any time.
0: Yeah, um, I think, well, that's the place in which, the time in which the film is set is a better, that's a better question for Luca. I know that uh, it was very important to him to have the energy of the time be surrounding what was happening within the walls of the building, and a lot of what this movie is about is thresholds and what's going on outside is almost going on inside, but the two don't know about. It's it's almost as though they can't they can't compete, but they coexist. Um, but he would be so much better at answering that question.
1: Were you familiar with the? original version of Suspiria? Were you original with Dario Gento's film before you were asked to do this?
0: No, I was not. How
1: did Luca, the director, how did he hook you into this movie? How did he sell it to you?
0: He didn't have to sell it to me at all. We were on set in Pantelleria. We were filming A Bigger Splash. And it was late at night, and he actually said today that it was late at night. I thought it was the morning, but... <laughs> Who's counting? (laughs) Yeah, who knows, really. Uh, And he asked me if I had seen Suspiria, and I said no. And he said that he wanted to make Suspiria with me and Tilda. And I said, okay. And then I went and watched the movie. But I watched it when we were back in the States because I couldn't get my hands on it. Pantelleria is a very difficult island. It doesn't have very good Wi-Fi.
1: Okay. So then when you got back home and you got some Wi-Fi and you watched it, what did you what did you think? What was your reaction when you saw it for the first time, knowing that this is what you've been asked to do?
0: Well, I thought it was amazing. Growing up and watching films, I loved movies about dance and I loved movies about witches. <laughs> it's the perfect <laughs> I film. I know. Then. And it was kind of right up my straza. But I was more curious to w- what he was going to do with it because... I had just made a bigger splash with him, which is a very loosely based on the sort of formation of swimming pool or Lepusine. And that I knew was not at all similar to the original. And it's a very different story that's told. So I was just in, like so in. And then we just kept talking about it for the next two and a half years, I guess that took.
1: And because the film. Uh, takes you and takes the viewer into some very dark places. Presumably that relationship with the director is so important because you have to trust him 100%. -hmm. So if a new director had come to you and said, I want to do this movie, maybe you'd have thought longer. Maybe it had to come from someone like Luca for whom this has been a passion project. He's always wanted to do it. Maybe it needed to be that kind of relationship that you'd have with the director.
0: Yeah, I think the relationship that, Luca and I have is so special and lucky and unique because we both feel totally safe and totally capable of anything. And we always say that we create a very safe environment to do very extreme things. And we sort of challenge each other. And the same with him and Tilda, the same with Tilda and I we just roll and it's great and it's um it takes nearly i mean now it takes no time to find our footing together and there's also because he has been so invested in making this film for so long with tilda the fact that he wanted to make it with me i felt even in the times when i didn't know that i was capable of pulling this off that he knew that i was so having that sort of trust in each other was really integral, I think, to making the film.
1: Can I ask you about the the dancing that you have to do? You mentioned that you've always loved films with witches and with <laughs> dancing, so yeah. so Spear is is perfect for you. But the dancing that you have to do is extraordinarily intense. Can you just explain a little bit, and p- particularly maybe with reference to the Volk dance, which is yeah. which is so significant towards the, well, it's the centerpiece of the film, really.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Volk is the main dance of the film. It's six minutes of choreography, which we did all six minutes every take, and it was so intense. So the dancing in the film is inspired by the works of Mary Wigman and Pina Bausch and uh, Martha Graham. So when I was training, I I watched a lot of Mary Wigman's work. And uh, when I was a little girl, I danced. I did ballet and dancing that's cute and pretty and mm-hmm. when things are may be really painful but they look really beautiful and this style of dance is german expressionist dance and it's it's with gravity it's not against gravity it's angular and sharp and not beautiful particularly but it's feminine and intense and you feel this sort of this dis-ease of women during this time And so to train for that, I did about a year, a little over a year of training, which was slow in kind of increments. And I would do three months with a trainer in New York to kind of work on the way my body would look like an actual dancer, but Mm -hmm. not a dancer that's formally trained for years and years. So someone who is active, but not a professional like Susie. And then I had to stop doing that so I could film a movie. And then a trainer came, a choreographer came to work with me while I was filming another movie. So I would do that after work. And then two months prior to actually starting filming on Susperia, we went to Varese and for two weeks did intensive days, like eight hours a day with all the dancers in the film. And these women are professional dancers and they tour around the world and they are... Extraordinary people. I learned so much from them, and they were so supportive, and they trained me every day. They taught me. They worked with me. They helped my body. They helped me when I was exhausted and so discouraged. But it was amazing, and throughout filming, Volk was the main part of the training that we did before filming, and then once we got that out of the way, it was mostly working with Damien Jallet, the choreographer, on the rest of Susie's dancing in the film.
1: And what is it that the witches who run this dance school, just going back to the story, what is it they see in your character, Susie, that is so incredible? Why, why do they react so strongly to you? What is it they see in you?
0: I think they see the energy coming from her soul. I think they see a power and an investment in this magnetic pull that she feels. I think they just see that she's... They see her power. They might even see that she might be more powerful than them, but they might refuse to believe that at first.
1: These are stats from uh, an interview Tilda Swinton gave, but I think she said the movie has 38 women and 3 men, which must be a unique experience, I would think, for any actor to be you know, in a movie where that's the balance.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful. In what way? Women are extraordinary creatures, and I loved being surrounded by women of all different ages from all different corners of the world working together on a project that is pretty wild and to have everyone be sort of focused on this energy and this vibe and this story that's very important to to me and and it was very important to all of us and it kind of created this energy on set and I think injected it into the sort of pulse of the film as well, this graceful chaos, this sort of almost tangible buzzing energy between women. And, you know, I went to an all-girls Catholic boarding school for one year. That that place was wild. So
1: Wilder than Suspiria?
0: Um, sure,
1: that's not possible. Well... <laughs> That'll be some school you went
0: to. <laughs> yeah, I definitely there weren't those kinds of rituals going on, but no. different...
1: I can imagine. Uh, what do we see you in next, Dakota?
0: Oh, I don't have anything. I mean, I have a couple of movies coming out, but I'm not sure when.
1: Because there is talk of uh, a follow-up to Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. And there is talk that you might be involved in that. Yes. So that's happening?
0: That's happening. Okay. Not sure when, but absolutely.
1: Uh, Dakota Johnson, thank you for your time. Thank you. <laughs> Just a word to parents. If you suspect your kid's school is anything like Susperia. <laughs> Take them out. Take them out. Definitely find uh, another school. So you're going to review it uh, next week. I'm going to see it next week because oh. I haven't seen it yet. I mean, I'm. I have to say, I'm trepidatious because I'm a huge fan of the Argento original, which is interesting because when you saw this version, you hadn't seen the Argento. And I've seen the Argento, but I haven't seen this Mm -hmm. version. And I sent you a link to an introduction that I'd done, I think for film four, to Suspiria, back when I was, you know, slim enough to be able to wear a leather jacket. You you were looking like uh, a gay icon i would have I to look say. like Marlon Brando in the wild one which is what i was aiming for okay but well, i wouldn't quite go that far really okay but i you know the 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 thing that's most striking about as you saw just from those clips of the argento spirit that i sent you the color palette of the argento is absolutely retina scorching and the thing that everyone says about this is that it's it's not it's a much more wintry palette it's mm-hmm. mu- it's mu- so I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm from what I I know horror fans who you know object to the idea of doing because Suspiria is a kind of sacred text. And I know other people whose opinion I've said who say no, it's it's really brilliant and it really deserves to be. It's two and a half hours long. That's correct. It's I think it's an hour two and a half slash five hours. Okay. So can I can I. Can I ask you for a? What, yes. Did you, did you like it? I couldn't wait for it to finish. <laughs> that's, that's minus assessment. That's going on the poster. Um, I think her dancing is extraordinary. I mean, right. I think there's lots to admire in it, and there are some scenes that are okay that are terrific. Okay. You know? um, it. Re- I mean, I spend most of my time trying to avoid films like this. I mean, uh, but you're you know you're the horror guy. You know what you're talking about. You, um, you are sort of immersed in the original. Would you do me a favor? What? If I sent you. Um... If I sent you a copy of the original, which is way way shorter, would you watch it before next Friday? Then we will both have seen both versions. I can I can endeavour to try. Okay, I, I guarantee you, if you start watching the agenda, you won't turn it off. Okay, unless someone else comes in the room, maybe. Yeah. In which yeah. Anyway, you know there's there's a lot to admire in it, but I, for the last twenty minutes, it was it, I tell you, it's it's a bit like it reminded me of Mother. <laughs> I was like, oh, please, really? Is that going to ha- Oh, that is going to happen. you like Mother. I, uh, yeah, I couldn't wait for that to finish. I... <laughs> no, but I felt the same way about Mother. I couldn't wait for it to finish, but in a good way. Matthew Jones is in County Westbeath. Yes. Uh, in Ireland. Dario Argento's Suspiria has long eluded me. Despite watching the much lauded Jallo, simply jello, yeah. multiple times. Jallow, which means yellow, yellow and takes its, its uh, theme from... Coldplay. Books. (laughs) Yes, exactly, from Coldplay. That's exactly what it was. (laughs) Dario Argento made Coldplay thrillers. There's no point in going any further. I I admire it (laughs) far more than I actually like it. Therefore, the notion of its long, gestating remake didn't exactly thrill me. However, when it was announced that Luca Guadagnino would be directing it, I became giddy with excitement uh, at the thought of my favourite filmmaker moving into my favourite genre. And what a beautiful nightmare it is. The incredible, incredible, powerful emotion... Uh, that Guadagnino felt during his first viewing of the original is exactly what I felt here. So much so that while exiting the screen in a daze, I genuinely had no idea how to process what I'd just experienced. But after giving the film time to settle, I feel that this is a staggering, haunting and surprisingly affecting work. I've since attended a further two screenings of this wonderful film and feel an even deeper connection to it with each subsequent viewing because what Guadadino has conjured is literal witchcraft. Well, wow. Guadadino that time. Yeah, well... As, which, whichever version you Listen, watch. if he can't hang around to do the I interview, know, exactly. I don't I care how I'm, how I'm say his name. name if he happens to stay around, I'll get yeah, his name right. OK. Um, can I review a film? Is it the Bros film? It is the Bross yes. film, Bross After the Screaming Stops. Um, Brossed you, Off. Brossed Off. Sorry, is that original? Yeah, Did, I think so. That's really good. Thank you. Ah, okay. Occasionally, why didn't I think of it? Okay, so uh, Matt, Luke, Goss, Darlings of eighties pop, who you interviewed on more than one occasion. Oh, loads of times. When I was doing Breakfast, they were they were like the, they were the big stars at the moment. Okay, and apparently you were due at one point to be in this documentary because you had interviewed. Them I was so su- much. I was supposed. to Okay, it, but you're not but due so to a Diary Clash. Diary Clash, exactly. <laughs> you had uh, other tidying up your pencil drawers to do. So um, they have been apart, and it looks like strange for many years. Um, and then they, you know Matt's been a performer in, in Latin. Vegas, uh, Luke, as we know, working in movies with the likes of Guillermo del Toro, they're identical twins. Um, I imagine everybody knows who Bros is, although I went to see this with Simran Hans from The Observer, who, of course, is much too young to remember Bross. Um, like so many pop brothers, they have tensions, you know, seemingly due to the fact that, you know, the drummer thinks that the singer is always uh, telling everyone and stealing the limelight and the singer thinks that the drummer is being unreasonable. But it's made worse by the fact they 're twins, so when they get back together again, their rehearsals. One of them has been playing music for a long time. one of them hasn 't played his drum kit forever, so their attentions before all absolutely amplified by the fact that they are rival siblings because you know that 's always been in the DNA here 's a clip. I am missing that relationship with my brother that I literally woke up in tears this morning. But because, because I just want the relationship with my brother. I don't want to talk about 50... You can have 100% shit-holder advice, I don't I'm care not, about, that about that. I'm not saying about Don't bring up the 50%, 50%. We are, let's not talk about that, let's talk about being brothers. I'm going to defend right. myself. So, so, yeah, no one, like, people are scared me, out man, out. and I'm not going to see that guy. <laughs> I
2: broke yesterday,
1: Luke, emotionally. I am completely not over it. If you think I just because you tell me to be... I was
2: embarrassed, I'm learning my issues. No, 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 let's not. Hang on, I'm learning... Can no, don't shut me down, I'm going to speak, I've listened.
1: No, right, Luke, I'm gonna speak. I'm gonna speak. You're gonna you. speak, are you? You're gonna speak. Because I've just told you how I feel. Do you let me tell Wow, that's a lot of birds hanging in there. So um, the title comes from something that Terry Wogan said, which is actually included in the documentary when he says they're on being interviewed in television, he says, so what happens after the screaming stops? And which is a very pointed question. But this could equally be called, um, you know, this is Spinal Bross, or even, you know, after Anvil's Bros, the story of Bross. Because on the one hand, you get this portrait of these two brothers, and the, the wounds are raw and tangible, and they're kind of getting, you know, they kind of put their differences aside and work together and dealing with the fact that they were so famous, that they were so enormously famous. On the other hand, there is dialogue in which they are saying things that sometimes you even wonder whether somebody scripted it. Like, for example, yeah, I listened to Stevie Wonder's Superstition. I decided never to be superstitious. Um, this is my favourite quote, which everybody in the screening love it, Rome wasn't built in the day, but then we don't have the time that Rome had. Which is, is really Nigel Tufnell levels of, and then you get this, and I don't want this. There's a thing about the the band names and the word epitome comes up on the screen. He says, yeah, epitome, that's Latin. Um, Again, I couldn't tell whether that was joking or not. There's another lovely bit about, oh, yeah, it's a blank page. You've got to turn the page because if you don't turn the page, the story doesn't make sense. When you get to the end, you think, what was that? And, and it, it, mm. th- there all these things are in there. But also at the heart of it, you do have this sense of, you know, the battling brothers who are trying to, you know, there's a, there's a lot of hugging, there's a lot of crying, there's a lot of shouting, there's a lot of saying things that are nonsensical, there's a lot of saying things that every now and then hit the... Now, I was never a Bross fan... But I really, really enjoyed this documentary. I mean, you kind of, on one level, you want to cuddle them. You want to, you want to say, look, it's going to be all right. On another level, it is, it, it is really funny. And it's very, very hard to know how much th- that funniness is. Happening. One thing which is weird is if you remember Bros from first time round, you remember the whole thing was that it was Matt Luke and Ken, Craig, who Viz Magazine dubbed Ken because it he's was... He's the guy who left, wasn't he? He's not in this I mean, it's, it's, no, really? it's like literally speed. So I'm not in it, and he's <laughs> not he's in not in it, in it oh, well, either. It's kind so of it's, undermined. So really. the whole way that the you know, the bros is basically it's those two. You know, because before they were glot, but then they were bros. But the whole thing that Viz did, you know, which one do you fancy, Matt Luke, or the one that no one fancies? Actually, there is an interesting story about Craig slash Ken, but that is not being told here. What is being told here is the story of the battling brothers, who talk like they've been written by Christopher Guest and uh you know the, the, the David St Hubbins Nigel Tufnell factor is right at the heart of this I I really enjoyed it I really really enjoyed it if if you love bros if you hate bros doesn't make any difference the film is really charming go see it with Grolsch bottle tops yes, on the, your shoe yes that's there's a lot of that is there there is a lot that's of it. that i introduced yes. them at Wembley you know nothing about that your not incredible back catalogue would surprise me. Do I not me. feature in it at I all? I didn't remember you being there, but I was just, you know, half the time my head was between my knees. You was like Rome wasn't built in a day, but then right. we don't have the time that Rome did. I need to see that film. <laughs> I have just found, it's not very useful, really. I have just found for Mark yes. a photograph of me with Bros. There you go, just oh, so you can wow. see how fabulously you similar. Look like the th- you look like the missing triplet. I am the missing trip. That's actually the... That's... You really you you really do look like you could be the third Bross person. Just holding it up for the webcam. Yeah, this is a treat for listeners. Yeah, it is. But it, Man holds up phone to webcam. It's, it's quite an exciting new feature, don't you think? Yeah. I look. I do look as though I'm part of the band. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, you, to with s- the band. you, you know, want what, to say something else? Yes, what I want to say was, the other thing that's worth saying about the documentary is that Bross's story is touched by tragedy, and it's it's a credit to the documentary that when it has to deal with those with, with those elements, it manages to negotiate. Thank you. Um it's a pleasure. Don't no, sorry. It. Thank you very much for the coffee. That was kind. Of, um, it manages to negotiate <laughs> the um, the change between being, on the one hand, this kind of spinal tappy thing to being something which is actually touching and affecting. And there are there are two moments that that, that did stand out. One of them was an observation that that when the press turned on you, when people hate Bros. They really hate them. And it does seem like an insane thing to hate a pop group. You know, I know, OK, it seems like an insane thing to go crazy yeah, sure. and wildly, but but the other side of it, it is like, yeah, it's a, it's a pop band, calm down. And there's also a lovely moment in which Luke talks about going into the studio to do their first major recording and realising when he gets there that the producer has already programmed all the drums. And wow. there's this moment of, and I'm doing what exactly? And I, it, it's, it's, not, it's a nicely told moment because there is there is this sort of very confessional moment of, you know, suddenly feeling like the absolute spare wheel. You know, you've programmed and having to fight to say, I'm the drummer, I should be. And I mean, I've heard that from so many when Com Angels, one of my favourite bands. I know there was a, when they were doing an album, they had to fight to allow Mick, who's one of the greatest drummers, I mean, to, to not be programmed by computer because that was the point when programming drums was what everybody did. Uh, James Lark on this email, who signs off not a brossette, as I was firmly devoted to the church of Jason Donovan at the time, as I was 10. A few weeks ago, Mark excitedly remarked there's a Bross documentary coming up to which Simon responded that seems like a good point to finish the show and promptly did so. I can't, <laughs> yeah. That might have been on the podcast. That was you, OK. I can't help wondering if it's an exchange that will be echoed across the country, perhaps between Brossettes and their mystified children. The height of Brosmania was so brief that we seem to have collectively forgotten... Uh, that they were, for a time, genuinely huge. Genuinely, like, the biggest band in the world. Anyway, I wanted to put it out there that After the Screaming Stops is well worth everyone's time. It is. Whether or not you were there at the time, there's plenty to satisfy any nostalgic cravings, but the film wisely focuses very much on the present, following Matt and Luke Goss as they reunite to play an anniversary concert at the O2... In 2017, the brothers have grown up and grown apart, very different personalities they make for endearing company and an unexpectedly entertaining double act, often laugh out loud funny, intentionally and otherwise. Yes, intentionally and otherwise, and that's the point. But as the sparks fly in rehearsals, they begin to expose all kinds of baggage from the past and it becomes harder to tell whether what's unfolding is a comedy or a tragedy. The resulting journey which deftly navigates the personal and public, the effects of sudden fame, the cruelty of media exposure and what happens when it all ends, is one that has stayed with me. I know that there are other films about certified platinum British stadium bands available at the moment, but this one has more than enough heart to rival the glossier options. Seek it out, you won't regret it. Yeah, and you won't. It's, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's, it's really good. And it's called Bros After the Screaming, after the screaming stops. stops. Which, as I said, was a quote from Terry. our own, our very own Terry Wogan. Nine minutes past three, what else do we have? The Grinch. Um... I'm not entirely sure that the world needed another version of the Grinch. I know everybody has their favorites and I mean I would always tend to go back to the you know the Chuck Jones Karloff. but so anyway we now do because Christmas is coming uh the studio's getting fat please dump an animation in the old man's hat. So animated retelling from Illumination who I've always enjoyed because Illumination. From who? Illumination. Oh yeah. You know with the Minions. Yes. In fact there's a Minion short at the beginning. When I saw it there's a Minion short at the beginning. Um Although, yeah, it wasn't... Yeah, I would, that was kind of disappointing. But anyway, so Pharrell Williams narrates, Benedict Cumberbatch is the, uh, the vocal star, and uh, Grinch obviously uh, doesn't like Christmas, hates Christmas, has a friend in Whoville. Well, he doesn't have a friend. He has somebody in Whoville who thinks he's a friend, and he said and Grinch try, tries to avoid him because he is so enthusiastic about Crimble. Here's a clip.
2: You know what? If you want to apologise for something,
1: apologise for that! My eyes are burning.
0: Well, don't don't blame me. Haven't you heard? The mayor wants Christmas to be three times bigger this year. That means three times the lights, three times the eggnog,
2: three times the... Information needed. Aha! That was a good one. Oh, I get it. This is one of your kidding things. Finally, something you said is actually funny. <laughs> yeah, I do kill a lot, but no, this Christmas is actually
1: three times bigger. Well you're just gonna oh, have oh a good dear. time with this, aren't you? Uh, <laughs> I
2: gotta say, no, it's no, really no. nice to see I, I, you I, I, laughing. I, I, sorry, <laughs> I, I can't hear you. I don't speak ridiculous. Oh, <laughs> yeah. you're a scream. Have a nice life. Goodbye. I'll see you later.
1: So, you know, you get the that's that's the general tenor of it. Um pretty good voice from Benedict Cumberbatch. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean <clears throat> and the animation is you know, elimination, so it's, you know, it's well done, although I have to say that Alarm Bell sort of started for me with the short film, which wasn't as funny as I as I wanted it to be and I thought that what you have here is a very forgettable passingly serviceable, but not much more than that retelling of The Grinch I mean, it's certainly not a patch on the classic 1966 isn't it the 66 animation before i know other people have got other versions of it that they they love but, but it's rather like the story is a good story and there are you know there are inventions and diversions of it but the story is a good story that kind of holds up and there's a certain level at which the thing just sort of you know it, it'll float it's because it's the grinch but if you're looking to it, say, okay, this is a new version of the Grinch. This is bringing this new to the table. This is doing this that hadn't been done before. This is giving us this element that we hadn't that we hadn't had before. That's that's not the purpose of it. I mean, it is it is as uninspired as it is undemanding. That's not to say that I'm absolutely certain that next week we will have some emails from people that said I took my kids to see it and they you know they enjoyed it and they laughed all the way through. I'm sure that will be the case. I just I'm not entirely sure that that it was necessary and um it's like that thing about you know it's not bar humbug it's it's bar ho humbug okay yeah because it's it's not terrible but it's just not it's not special and that's that i think is the is the weird thing I'm just doing a thing at the moment about Christmas movies for the, the Secrets of Cinema. And we've been looking at this kind of whole history of Christmas movies, in which there is a, such a huge... And when you look at the Christmas movies that are great, the Christmas movies that are timeless, the Christmas movies that you will go back to time and time again, there is a reason It's a Wonderful Life keeps getting... But you know, even though it flopped when it first came out. And you just think, well, this, OK, it's fine, it'll sit it'll, it'll on the DVD shelf and it'll probably come around on television. But it's, it's, it's remarkably unremarkable. Oh, okay, it's like damned with fe- faint praise. Then, Where yeah, would you rather with watch what, with what praise? Any praise? Would you rather watch this again or the Jim Carrey? I haven't seen the Jim Carrey for a really long time. So actually, I'm quite in, I'm quite interested to watch the Jim Carrey again because I it was such a long time ago that we wasn't weren't we still at Radio One when it probably came out? I think so we were just post Bros and I think growing up. I think I left Radio One and James King was doing the the, the film show with you at that point. That's right. You were entering your wilderness years at the time. Yeah, doing introductions to Suspiria, which now proves so useful when you go to see That's the new version. I'll just send you the link to the one that I did. There we are. Pretty definitive. It's That's got all the stuff good. in there that you need. But of course, the wilderness years. That's right. Yeah. That's how I wrote I'm a couple of books, it. made a couple of documentaries, made five documentaries, in fact, Didn't in watch very them. quick succession. No, but many other people did, and some of them won awards. Have I rattled your cage? No. I think that means. Uh, yes. <laughs> anyway, so okay. Where were we? So, Overlord. I <clears throat> oh, was. All oh, right. So we moved on. Yeah. I mean, there's 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 really not much else to say about. I mean, as I said, I am certain that we will get some emails from people saying it could say they thought it was fine. It fine is the very best that it is. I needed to be told that the Grinch. This is back to Jim Carrey. It was never a big story. It was. It's an American story, and I don't think it was ever quite so big over here in its original form, when it was originally knocking around. But it's it's just another retelling of... of it's another retelling of, of Christmas Carol. I know, but the, the Grinch as a character meant a lot more in America, I think, than it did. Yes, although there. I think now that because of the movies and because of, because of the fact that, you know, American cultural imperialism is such a big thing, that right? everybody absolutely knows about it, yes. But, you know, but it is... It's a Christmas Carol. It's another version of a Christmas Carol, isn't it? It is, kind of, but yeah. with... Just Slightly more annoying, and there, well, yes, but there, but you know, the moment when when Grinch realizes that perhaps Christmas doesn't come in a box, you'd have to be pretty hard hearted not to, you know, not to go, Oh, that's nice, it's a lovely little okay, you know, anyway, okay, fine. Correspondence, so, please, Mail at bbc.co.uk. So, Overlord, um, produced, they okay, produced by JJ Abrams, it's a bad uh, robot production who apparently came up with the original story. Julie's Over is insanely over the top hybrid war movie horror movie, um, you know mashup, uh, run up to D Day. Uh, American soldiers parachuting into occupied France. Their mission is to take down a church tower in which the Nazis have e- erected a, you know, a, a, a radio broadcasting, and this is broadcasting signals that needs to be taken out so that the air support can come in. That everything will be fine. Um, of course, what happens at the very, very beginning is that uh, there's a spectacular. There is a very spectacular opening. Do you remember? Do you remember Pearl Harbour, the Michael Bay film? Oh, yes. You you said something, yes, and I do remember it. Did you see it? Yes, on DVD, I think. There's a a scene in Pearl Harbour, which was in the trailer, and actually was the thing that made Pearl Harbour look like it was going to be really good, which was this kind of bomb drop thing in which the camera is on top of this thing and then it drops through the one it falls all and it's, and it's it was quite back then it was quite a spectacular shot there is an opening at the beginning of overlord which reminded me of that but not in a bad way it reminded me of that in a kind of oh wow you know they're doing all this in, and putting all this stuff together and then the plane's up there and then the thing happens and they're to fall out they're gonna parachute and the you know the camera's and okay fine that's pretty pretty breathless opening then um Manages to, uh, to 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 ship up uh, just about in one piece, and some of the colleagues have made it, and some of them haven't, and they sort of you know form together a little ragtag band, and then what they have to do is they have to get to the church tower to do the job they're meant to do. En route they find something which looks a bit weird. Is it human? Is it an animal? What killed it? How did it get there? And first warning signs that ah, you've just stepped from one movie into another. And so underneath what's going on anyway, something really weird and bizarre is happening in the context of the war. Here we go. What here?
2: I the church. Crowds grabbed me as soon as I hit the ground. Inside the church? How did you get inside the church? Dead bodies. Slow, Slow down. down. Slow, Slow down. down. To me. They're doing experiments breathe. on them in there. They're doing experiments
0: on the villagers. What? Just like her aunt. They're burning people with these flamethrowers, and they're still moving the bodies,
2: <laughs> cocoon it's things. And they're... Did you get eyes on the tower compound? She doesn't, she doesn't have a body, and she's still, she's still talking. And hey. I, I saw Rosafel's hey. voice. Did you get eyes on the tower compound? The tower base is, yeah, is below the ground, but there's more than that down there. Okay, look. Okay, what the hell is that?
1: What is <laughs> it? It's a, it's it's a bad thing. So uh, Jovan Adepo as voice uh, We also get uh, Peter Asbeck as the, playing not so much chewing the scenery as eating the, masticating the scenery and spitting it back out again. So. Essentially, from the very beginning, everything is turned up to eleven. So it starts with this really kind of you know high-powered sequence, which is quite broad. Breath- and then it sort of proceeds in very loud, uh, bangy, crashy fashion. And but when I when I watched it, I didn't really know where the story was going at the beginning. All I knew was the the title, and I I, I knew that. Um, I'd read a couple of people had sort of been been quite excited by it. But I didn't know where it was going until you get to the moment when it steps over the line, it goes from one genre into another. Obviously, once people people are going to go and see the film, they will understand that it is a genre-crossing movie. It has explosive action and the kind of scrungy, no-holds-barred, gory effects that... that, uh, Enthusiasts of the old video nasties period back from the nineteen eighties will will go. oh yes, I remember those good those old. Were the days. Those were the days when it was possible to go down to your local news agent and get something utterly scrungy. Um, it's. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd movie. It does work um, on on many levels. I think the performances are largely the thing that, that, that they have. They bring sort of warmth and wit to the proceedings, even when the film itself is not so much tiptoeing around the ridiculous as ploughing right through the middle of it. Um, Peter Asper is just, he is really sort of full on, absolutely turned up to uh, Eleventy Stupid And um, Tilda Olivier is very good as the resistance fighter. I went to see it again with uh, Simran Hans, my my colleague from uh, the Observer. And what was really good was I was sitting just like two seats away from her. And when when the stuff started to happen, when the film started to turn monstrous, when it was all, I looked over at one point and she was hiding behind her hands. I thought, this is good. This is what this a horror movie is doing. What a horror because Simran's not a huge horror movie uh, sort of bore in the way that I am, Um, you know. So it was it was working there. It was it was doing the thing that it was meant to be doing uh, with I. I f- I found myself never getting completely sucked into it, but it has this kind of unrelenting quality that gives it a certain punch. And it's you know it's it, it's it's executed with a sort of tongue in cheek bravado, tongue in cheek, and often through cheek. Nice. <laughs> yes, exactly. So yeah, it's it's kind of. It's kind of fun, but what makes it work is that in the middle of all this unfolding madness and mayhem and this sort of reanimator stuff that's going on around everyone, you know, everyone thinking Stuart Gordon and everything, is that you have performances that are reminding you that you have to be invested in the characters, otherwise none of this would matter at all. Chris in Wiltshire, I went in expecting a schlocky B-movie about Nazi zombies. I came away pleasantly... Oh, well, there we go. So I, I was tiptoeing around everything, but now there we are. Fine. Was that, a, was that a secret? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I came away pleasantly surprised by a solid war movie that happens to go a bit bonkers, bonkers later yeah. on. The cast are excellent, and it's a rare case with this sort of movie uh, where it's being played absolutely straight. Just about works. It does the Michael Bolton thing of peaking at the beginning. Yes, that exactly. But, but overall, an entertaining diversion that's unlike anything else that is likely to get a wide cinema release for some time. I like that. It's a Michael Michael Bolton film. Yes, exactly. But I mean, you know, that's referring to something that I'd said about Michael Bolton. It's everything is a reference to. An homage, really, to to your to previous, me, yes, to, to previous. But that words. again, saying I'm agreeing with this because it said what you know, what I you're agreeing with yourself. I'm agreeing with him, with that that uh, email writer agreeing with me is that that because the cast are playing it straight. I mean, there is definitely bit, at the beginning it's a war movie. It is just playing like a straight out and out war movie before it turns into zombie lake. It is a straight out and out war movie. And then the the change and the shift, therefore, is kind of well done because the, because the cast aren't mugging. I mean, that said, we said I weren't expecting a schlocky B movie. There isn't. Is, it, it it has a very strong element of that. In the same way that um, you know, that many of the movies I really like don't have any problem with the fact that they've that they're rooted in B movie exploitation cinema, and they've been, this absolutely is. Steve George in Bristol just go back from a screening of Overlord. I've been looking forward to this ever since the first trailer crept out. I'd read one or two sniffy reviews, so went in with lowered expectations. I'm a sucker for these kind of movies and I'm pleased to report that I loved it. A visceral, blood-spattered B-movie. It was a blast. (laughs) There we go. Okay, fine. Blast from start to finish. I didn't think they made these kind of movies anymore. Not in the mainstream anyway, but here we are. The film had everything you could reasonably expect from a genre-bending movie like this. Tension, action, humour and bucket loads of gore. It seemed to wear its 18 certificate with pride. Yes, it did definitely do that. And actually, very rarely. We have two 18th certificate movies, uh, which we're going to talk about. Um, so worth saying, um, <coughs> So the, the screenplay credits, Billy Ray and Mark L. Smith screenplay, and Billy Ray is credited with the story. Uh, so whatever the the... the the Abrams thing is he is credited with the story. John Gunn, uh, MA, Honours, Modern History and International Relations at St Andrews. Oh, yeah. I saw Overlord on Wednesday evening at my local cinema and it's a rather enjoyable slice of weird World War II which gets going after a slightly hokey start. Uh, The characters are archetypal but their portrayal never descends into parody. The bonus of having no-one famous in the cast is you're never sure who will or who will not make it And at last, here's a major film release that isn't afraid to say it's an 18 certificate uh, and that doesn't purely rely on jump shocks, although it does have a few... I already have an appreciation and enjoyment of the weird World War II genre and this is the first time I've seen it portrayed effectively, enjoyably and recognisably on screen. Another J.J. J. Abram- Abrams produ- uh, produced hit in my book, Tickety Tongue Cold Fruit in Down With The Nazis, especially if they're going to be carrying on like like this. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how it does at the box office because the argument about trimming films down for 15 has always been... If you if it's an eighteen certificate movie, it restricts so much of the audience that therefore it, the film's not going to make money. But it'd be interesting to see how this does. Sorry, you were about to read another email. So oh, I, uh, I, I jumped in. One final one uh, from Jack Bennett. If you hadn't seen the trailer, you wouldn't know of the dual genre nature of Overlord. Uh, the genre shift to full-blown zombies but not quite action comes after 75 minutes of truly brilliant wartime drama with some moderate scares. The opening scene of the paratroopers' entrance to war-torn fr- uh, French countryside is a particular highlight. It, it is it is a Michael Bolton opening. For its chaotic, intense and disorientating depiction of what it must have been like for those who did the deed for real in World War II. The horror element begins to build early on but is never more than a hint of the upcoming genre shift uh, until the point from dusk till dawn, to dawn style, where it's made clear that we're not in Kansas anymore. anymore. Uh, the only bum note I can think of is how the film falls into the trap of a predictable final 30 minutes with all the enjoyment had before then. It's disappointing to feel let down at the last hurdle. It's a much better film than From Dusk Till Dawn. I mean, I did, I, you know, D- Dusk Till Dawn has got that broken back structure when it literally is one film and then it goes crack and then it becomes another film, with like, almost out of nowhere. In terms of this, that description of it builds... You know the, the 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 clues are there in the background, and it and it it works rather nicely. Just one just one question before yeah. we, before we move on. Yes. It's Remembrance Weekend. Coming yes, out. is there anything? Yes, well, um, feel slightly uncomfortable about this coming out. Remembrance. Weekend, oh, I see. Well, it... No, it, uh, but I I didn't think that. Okay. But I was going to say. Were you going to say? Was there anything else that, that um, they shall not grow old is back in cinemas today. We can Saturday talk Saturday and movies. Sunday, and then of course it's on television on Sunday itself. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's Overlord, Certificate 18. Yes. Um, so Outlaw King, um, which is Netflix production with uh, certain cinema releases, uh, story of Robert the Bruce, the uh, 14th century. Robert the Bruce agreeing to serve under Edward, but the servience is obviously going to be short-lived, directed by David McKenzie. And David McKenzie directed Up and Hell or High Water and is a very fine director starring Chris Pine in what has been referred to in all the tabloids as a revealing performance. James Cosmos, Stephen Delane and Florence Pugh, who I think is is absolutely terrific. Um, he is Robert at the beginning he's uh, apparently agreeing to a subservient truce but of course that isn't going to last because what he's attempting to do is to amass support for his cause, His eclipse.
2: I confess I was surprised to receive your letter I do urgently desire to discuss with you a matter most delicate it's a bit cryptic wouldn't you say it was intentional really. And if I were to infer that your aim was, in fact, to reignite a rebellion, we already tried it for eight bloody years, and we failed. Because we didn't unite? No. Because your family were too busy trying to claim a crown that wasn't theirs. Are you saying you wish to relinquish that claim?
1: I'm saying we need to set aside our rivalry and win back our country, then we can
2: decide who wears the crown. Us. Not Edward. John, between us, we could raise 20,000 men. We could have a fighting chance. It'll never work. The people are tired of war and suffering. Wallace was tortured and slaughtered. The people aren't tired. They are desperate for justice. Wallace got what he deserved. He wasn't a man. He was an idea. So it's it's
1: an odd film. Um, On the one hand, you know, you can see it as a sort of, you know, a pickup from from Braveheart, you know, the, the Wallace stuff. And uh, I think the accents are fine. I, I didn't have a, uh, a problem with them, which everyone always sort of imagines that you're going to. And I think there are some very good performances, not least uh, Florence Pugh as Elizabeth, who is, she was the real standout in that film, Lady Macbeth, which I, I absolutely loved. And she here she has the same sort of forceful power in what, a kind of uh, politicized romance that goes on between the two central characters this kind of th- thread that runs through. and I think what she does is she she makes that part of her own and she brings something to it that it re- that really does broaden the drama out. James Cosmo is in stalwart farm form as uh, robert 's father and it 's shot by um, by Barry Aykroyd, who of course is, you know is an absolutely brilliant cinematographer. And so there is an argument. Paul Greengrass. Paul um preferred you know, cinematography of choice. And so when you have all that, you do think, okay, well, in that case, there is an argument definitely for going and seeing it in the cinema rather than seeing it on the small screen because, you know, that way you get to appreciate it. So here's my problem, Okay. I think that Dave McKenzie is a really good filmmaker. And I think that what this doesn't do is this doesn't have the kind of, um, the ludicrous bombast of, uh, of Braveheart, which I never liked. I know other people did, but I never liked it. And so on that then I think, okay, fine, that's good because it doesn't have that, you know, that bombastic, slightly ludicrous, or well, not slightly ludicrous, ludicrous thing that's going on I- I- in Braveheart. But what it also doesn't have is the dramatic spark because I'm spending a lot of time watching it thinking you know why am why am I not being more emotionally gripped by this why why does this why is this not working for me when I've got you know huge great sweeping vistas and battle scenes in which you're sort of right in the middle of it and you know a number of performances which are you know well handled and well done and it, it, it's odd because despite the fact that individual elements of the film would seem to make you think, okay, this this should add up to something more, it was, what's that phrase, the whole is less than the sum of its parts. When you break it down individually, the individual elements seem to be strong, but when you put them all together, I did find it, and I'm sorry to say this, I found it a bit of a slog, and... You know, I, part of me is thinking, is it me or is it the film? Do I need to see it? Because I saw it on a small screen. Do I need to see it on a big screen? And maybe that would be the thing that would make the difference. But I don't know. I think it's for, for something which, which is so laden with drama, I found it oddly undramatic. And certainly in terms of the director's previous works, all of which have had, you know, they are their stories about maleness in crisis of which this is another one to some extent. But it, it, what it never had was that thing which you know got under my skin. I watched it without ever being in it. What certificate is it? I, I imagine it's 15. I'll check it out. Because it looks, it looks to me as though it's an 18. I just want to... Oh, well, no, that may be right. That may well be right, because there is... Um, I'm just, uh, as you know... I am a horror. I'll, I'll look yes, it up. An eight, and I'll it is it. an eighteen. Eighteen. Fine. So I just wonder when the last time was we reviewed back to back two films which were both eighteen. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because eighteen certificate movies have definitely fallen by the way. When when we started out on Radio One, every other movie was an eighteen certificate. <laughs> but movie. now, but now an eighteen is kind of reclassified as a fifteen. It has to be pretty full-on for it to be an 18. It is certainly true. Well, yes, although the BBFC's, the, the BBFC's classification, they're to do like dwelling on injury and dwelling on... OK, you know, well, Suspiria will be an 18, so <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of 18s around. <laughs> TV Movie of the Week, thank you for your uh, suggestions. This is uh, what we have. Martin Harrison says, I'm sure Mark will pick They Shall Not Grow Old and So Will I. I saw it on the big screen uh, at the Regal in Henley last week and it's a truly eye-opening and affecting work. The technical accomplishment of the film is impressive but it's still secondary to the voices. The digital enhancement of the archive footage simply serves very effectively to break down the barrier of 100 years and help bring a new level of immediacy to spoken recollections which must never stop being heard. I don't think the usual parameters for TV Movie of the Week really apply this week. No, sure. There may arguably be a, quote, better movie on the list, but there is nothing more relevant or compelling not in this week. Uh, Stuart Baker, I will certainly be watching They Shall Not Grow Old, but on a personal level, I'd say Howl's Moving Castle would be my TV Movie of the Week. I know it doesn't get the plaudits his other work gets, but for me... It's another Miyazaki five-star masterpiece. I love everything about it, from the characters, the art style and the magical world to the wonderful voice acting. It's the first Ghibli film I, sh- I showed my daughter, aged oh, wow, three at the time, and she absolutely adored it. And watching one of my favourite animated films with my daughter and having her love it is a memory I'll cherish forever. Annika Ruff... Mark will certainly pick They Shall Not Grow Old and I'll definitely be tuning in to see this following his initial review. However, special mention should go to It Follows, a terrifying horror masterpiece, in my opinion, which made me over-analyze every room I walked into <laughs> for exit points and scrutinise every person walking towards me slowly for quite a few days afterwards. Am I right did you watch It Follows? I did not watch It Follows. OK. Why did I think you did? I don't know. I will only watch... If, if there was a guest, I'd have... Uh, I'd... No, I'm sorry. For some reason, uh, no. I thought that we'd had a conversation about that. Karen Richardson, think Mark will struggle this week between The Red Shoes, The Babadook, and They Shall Not Grow Old. I'm going to go with the heartbreaking Heal the Living which I watched after Mark flagged it up, a beautifully visual film about loss. It is great. So bearing in mind that the normal rules kind of... uh, Yeah, I am changed. I mean, I am going to go for They Shall Not Grow Old because I think it it is a really... I think it's a work of art and I think it's... You know, the more people that see it, the better. I thought it was really affecting and... uh, it is in cinemas today, tomorrow, Sunday, and then you can watch it on television as well. So. And when is it on the TV? Um, it is on the TV. I don't have that information right okay. in front of me. I'm oh, Simon, off the top thank of you. my head, I'm, yes. it's on. Sunday BBC Two. There no. we go. It's on Sunday at BBC Two, 9.30 in the evening. Excuse me for not having that immediately okay. in my fingertips. 9.30 in the evening, Sunday on BBC Two. It literally says it. in. They've written it in bold because there was like literally no question that that was what I was going to choose as TV movie of the week. So, and there it is. There it is. So. Um, TV Movie of the Week, so So bad bad. it's bad. Damien Cully, a few weeks ago, I considered getting an early night, but instead watched The Hangover Part 2 on a popular streaming service. I was annoyed at myself at the end for watching this rubbish. Disappointed in yourself. I shouldn't have bothered. It was made worse by my wife going into labour half an hour after I got into bed. I ended up with two hours sleep in the next 24 hours. Hmm. (laughs) If only I'd listened to the wise words of Mark, I could have doubled the amount of sleep. This is and will remain one of the main regrets in my life. I imagine there's (laughs) a tongue-in-cheek there from from, Damien. Simon Andrew Morris, it's all relative. Kill Bill 2 is the biggest waste of talent. Johnny English Reborn and The Hangover Part 2 don't satisfy the six-laugh test between them. It's hard to believe that Bradley Cooper was ever involved in that woeful franchise. isn't, Isn't that astonishing? that that was you know that was kind of the introduction and yet now it will be in in the future when bradley cooper is bradley cooper people will look back and go you know the funny thing is he did that he did that nick dusting oh come on there's a clear winner psycho 2 it's a terrible film it's, it's not outright, terrible but compared with hitchcock's masterpiece it's an affront yeah no i fine, can't but... even i can't even think of a funny line to go with this utter rubbish that should never have been made yeah well, all I can say is that it's nothing like as bad as The Hangover 2, which is... Is that our TV movie? It's, 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 so, but Yeah, I mean, but, but of course it is. It's just so horrible. And that's the thing, it's horrible. It's a secondary infection thing, isn't it? Oh, OK, good. We haven't had a secondary infection for a while. No, but you did... I remember you interviewed um, Bradley Cooper about... Um, he did a movie with uh, Robert De Niro... Yeah, but about uh, the brain, I forget. Yeah, was it called relentless or unstoppable? It was one of those words that meant like. Yeah, he actually came into the Five Low Studio, and he was lovely. Yeah, he absolutely, was delightful. And second time around was uh, limitless. Thank you, limitless Limitless is what it was. That's right. Yeah, And and I think I mentioned to you when I walked in to do the interview for Star Is Born, he said. We've met before, haven't we? You see, he's a so, class act. So, guaranteed, that's, he did not that, remember that. But you know the fact he'd come into the Five Live Studios. But that was a pretty impressive way to start. Yeah, no, with. I think that's that's classy. Anyway, so w- when do I avoid Hangover Two? You can avoid a Hangover Two. Uh, hold on one second. Why did you do this to me? Now? Okay, the Hangover Two is on 11 p.m. on Monday on five. Okay, good. Well, I'll be, you can stay. You can stay away from that. Make a point of avoiding that. Okay. So it's. Uh, 18 minutes to four o'clock drive coming up at four, but we have some more movies to discuss and consider. Something weird happened then? No, we've got to discuss and consider, but you'll do the consider and then we'll do the discussing. Okay, so The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, again, uh, Netflix uh, title, um, based uh, later from the Coen brothers, based on Western-themed short stories, written by the Coens over a 25-year period, apparently. Um, uh, so the film opens with a like a, a book of stories, and the book opens and we see that each story is illustrated with a, a colour plate as they were referred to. And under the colour plate there is a quotation from the story, you know in a proper book. So the stories include Meal Ticket in which uh, Liam Neeson and Harry Melling have this uh, storytelling sideshow, the popularity of which is waning. Mortal Remains in which you get a mismatched group of people, one of whom is Brendan Gleeson, finding themselves thrown together on a stagecoach. And the opening The Ballad of Buster Scruggs uh, starring Tim Blake Nelson as singing cowboy come sharpshooter.
2: A song never fails to ease my mind out here in the West, where the distances are great and the scenery monotonous. Additionally, my pleasing baritone seems to inspire old Dan here and keep me in good heart during the day's measure of hoof clops. Ain't that right, Dan? Maybe some of y'all have heard of me. Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. I got other handles, nicknames, appellations, and cognomens, but this one here, I don't consider to be even halfway earned. Misanthrope, I don't hate my fellow man, even when he's tiresome and surly and tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material, and him it finds in it cause for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Ain't that right, Dan? <coughs>
1: I like the sound of that. Yeah, I know. So that kind of gives you a, t- uh, a sense of the quirky tone of it. He then pulls into the nearest town where immediately everything turns to uh, sharpshooting. And one of the things that the Coen brothers have always done, I mean, they've, they've 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 always loved Westerns. I mean, you've got No Country for Old Men and you've got obviously the remake of True Grit. And then you've got the whole singing cowboy section of, of Hail Caesar. Um, you know, the... Would that it worse so simple. Would that it were so simple. I, which I, I still think that scene is one of the funniest. I mean, I know that it's it's uh, singing in the rain, but anyway, it's great. So you've got that, but also what the Coen's have often done is mix that with violence. So if you look back at kind of early Coen brothers' work, they, they've they always done this thing about, you know, the dark and the light, the light and shade are sort of right next to each other. So you have this this slightly recoiling thing because suddenly something that's playing one way plays another way. A scene that's very violent plays funny or a scene that's very funny plays violent. So this depicts. Of the West is is full of violence and death and sudden and you know atrocious ends and the stories themselves are very very different in tone. So the the opening story, the the Buster Krug's uh, Buster Krugs Ballad, is you know quirky and jovial in that old kind of you know looking back to those early Sam Raimi Cohen Brothers days. And then there is uh, there's another section, which is a, a story with, uh, with Tom Waits in it called All Girl Canyon, when he is prospecting for gold. And the story is that he's prospecting. and funnily enough, I was watching the film, I w- was watching it for five minutes before I realized that it was Tom Waits. I knew that Tom Waits was in the film, and then I'd forgotten that Tom Waits was in the film. And this really sort of surly old curmudgeon is walking around, you know, doing the. And there's a like, oh my word, that's Tom Waits. It was only when he started talking to himself and doing, oh, fine, it's Tom Waits. So he's out prospecting for gold. And he's in the he's in this valley that appears to be completely untouched, but there's nobody else around. Nobody has gone prospecting there, and he starts doing the thing, sifting around and to And he keeps referring to the Mister Pocket. I'm going to find you, Mister Pocket. And I thought that was was really lovely. There's the galley got rattled with Zoe Gazan, who of course was one of the co-writers of Wild Wildlife, which we're, which we're going to talk about in just, just a moment. It. Which it's is who's sto- the partner of Paul Dano? Paul Dano. Dano there Dano. Dano. Uh, let's call the whole thing off. I go would say way. I think it's Paul Dano. Okay. Let's right. go with Dano. OK, if we're wrong, who knows? Um, and so she is a young woman who is on a wagon train with her brother who has essentially married her off to somebody. But as the wagon train pr- uh, progresses, things take a turn for the very different. And that story has got this really l- lilting, romantic, touching, very affecting edge that then is able on a on a on a nickel to turn on the nickel. Uh, sorry, Tom Waits movies. It was I. Mm. Hey, what becomes of all the little boys? Never come their hair. Swimming all round the block on a nickel. Over there Anyway, sorry, that's well, my Tom Waits. Well, and it's but it, it turns I mean, turns on. A, yes, it was Tom Waits. Turns on a dime from something which is. Uh, sort of seems moving and sentimental. Something which, again, you know, is more shocking. That I mean, the thing with any anthology movies is there are going to be bits that you like more than others. And the question is, do they all sort of hang together? And in fact, we'll refer to this a little bit later on. We'll very quickly look at, at Waru, which is um, again another anthology portmanteau film. But I like this. I I I I enjoyed it. It was. There were moments in it when it was funny, there were moments in it when it was shocking, there were moments in it when it was touching. I particularly loved the Tom Waits thing and I particularly loved uh, the, the Zoe Kazan stories. Those two were the ones that worked best for me. A couple of the other ones don't quite work so well. I'm, I'm not entirely sure that the, uh, that the Liam Neeson section exactly knows what it's doing. But it's fine because, in a way, some of the stories seem... They seem at the time inconsequential and they seem to end on odd notes and afterwards you kind of start to impose order on them. But I enjoyed it. I was never, I was, I was never bored. I think there were things in it that were really charming. Uh, as was your Tom Waits impression. Thank there. you. A voice we hadn't heard. <sighs> of, uh, I don't think. But I've done have, Tom Waits before, haven't I? We have heard enough of it now. So uh, it's told but it's a Is it wildlife time? That told me yes he it, it told you I'm just editing as we go along okay alright Wildlife uh, the feature directorial debut by Paul Dano Dano let's call the whole thing off um, based on uh, a novel by Richard Ford which I haven't read have you? I have not okay fine so uh, story set in it's 1960 isn't it it's yes. in, end of the 50s beginning of the 60s 1960. so Ed Oxenbold who um, is who has an uncanny resemblance to Paul Dano Dano in his face he has that same sort of slightly bewildered look, some, you know, sensitive and slightly removed. And it, it's it's easy to imagine when Dana was directing to think he's looking at that character as... Okay, and, he's, and he's the boy that we, we see the movie through his eyes. We see the movie through his eyes, exactly. So he is the director's side. That's not to say that it's not a fully rounded character because it is. Anyway, so the story is his parents, Jeanette and Jerry, Kerry Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal, both in, in very, very good form, are perpetually on the move. You get the sense that they've moved from one place to another a lot. And you get the sense that one of the reasons for that is that Jerry is not able to hold on to a job. And at the beginning of the movie, we see Jerry, he's working on a golf course and he's being a little bit chummy with, uh, with the people who he's meant to be working for. The next thing you know, he's lost his job. He says he's lost his job because he's too popular, because people like him too much. And you know there's it's actually quite a crushing scene when he's 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 told by his boss to come over and have a word and and the son watches and you don't you know you sort of hear it vaguely in the background but it's actually played off the son's face you see the son watching and recognizing what's happening and then the uh, the stubbornness in that central character causes him through a mixture of pride because there are other jobs that he could take to decide that what he's going to do is he's going to become some be, going to become somebody who will go and fight wildfires i mean the film is called wildlife but i keep thinking of it as wildfire mm. because these wildfires are raging up I in mean, there in great falls montana and these wildfires are raging and people are getting paid very very small amounts of money to go out and fight the fire and all the way through the drama the fire is this sort of uh, surrounding presence it's it's the kind of collapse or the threat that is closing in around the family when he does this his mother says you why why are you going to do that Just stay here you can't just you know go you won't come back again he does because that's what he's decided he has to do. So she then starts to develop this kind of slightly flirtatious, initially relationship with Mr. Mill played by Bill Camp, who is this kind of ever so slightly creepy and you know probably not somebody you're going to fall for uh, character, who's a, a local auto magnate to whom uh, Joe's mother starts making eyes.
0: Well, how'd you like this particular getup? Looks nice. I used to dress like this all the time when I was younger. I'd stand behind the bullshoots at the rodeo and hope some cowboy would approve of me. Made my father very mad. They called us shoot beauties. Isn't that an impressive thing to know about your mother? That she was a shoot beauty?
2: Yeah, Dad told me about it. He said he liked it.
0: Yeah, it's probably nice to know your parents when once not your parents.
2: Who were you on the phone with?
0: Don't worry. if it had been your father, I would have put you on. Do you like Miller? Oh, you mean Mr. Miller? Yeah, do you like him? Not very much. Things do happen around him, though. He has that feel about him. And what's his wife like? He doesn't have one anymore. She left him, apparently. How would you like to skip school tomorrow?
1: And that sound you can hear in the background is alarm bells going off. So what I liked about this, and Kerry Mulligan was on the show last week talking very uh, eloquently about the film. What I liked about it was the way in which it juxtaposes tiny domestic detail and observation. I mean, the production design is very good. You do believe that you are in that, that period setting. I mean, you said this thing about, you know, you're going to love the wardrobe and you're going to love the way it looks. It was one of the first things that I thought was that when I looked the way Jake Gyllenhaal was dressed, I thought, I thought yeah, Mark would like to dress like that. Yeah. I mean, he, you do, really. But... I do dress like that, yes, although I don't have quite the, I don't cut the swathe that Jake Gyllenhaal does. But it's not just... I mean, it's the fact that the production design is is all spot on. You believe that that's where you are. You believe in the period. And it's not to do with you believe in the period because it's got the right car. It's to do with everything, to do with the way in which characters move, the way in which characters talk, just the little details is right. But what I like is that is offset against this wider backdrop, which is the vast Montana skies. I mean, you think about, you know, all those movies which make such a lot of the Montana landscape, and, it, you know, it's it, it's the poetry of the American landscape. And the fires that are sort of raging, that are creeping towards the town, that are the omnipresent threat, that are, you know, these are the, the forces that are ranging against the stability of the family. And all the way through, the film plays off the, the tiny details against the bigger picture. And that's the stuff that worked the best for me. I think the screenplay is... I said I haven't read the the, the novel, I apologise for that. But I think what the screenplay does is the right balance of... It tells you what you need to know about the characters, but it doesn't sit down and spell things out that don't need to be spelled out. So although it is actually quite a talky film, it's not unnecessarily expository. I never got that feeling of, okay, and now, now somebody's going to explain to me what's going on. Even in that scene in which somebody is literally explaining the, the fires. When we see Joe sitting down I mean, and, he's, and he's taking notes on a lecture that he's been given about the fires and what happens if the fires come and what you have to do. And then this young girl says to him, you don't have to take notes. And he says, why not? She says, this is like the bomb. Instead of it comes, we're all dead. And so the whole thing is sort of is framed within that that fatalistic conceit at the beginning. There's also a lovely moment in it in which Joe, the Ed Oxenborg character, says, what's going to happen? And I, I love that because you did have this sense that his, his he is lost in the wide world, that the stability of the family unit upon which he has relied is starting to show... Um, you know, uh, cracks. It's starting to to break along the seams, and you've got a sense from his face, as I said once again, that that bewildered expression, that sense that things are not working out the way he had planned. Um, I think it's also got a terrific score by David Lang, which really gives you that kind of sense of swirling, amplified loss also moving towards resolution because you know all the way through that that you've got that kind of psych, cyclical musical motif which builds as if there is a storm coming or as if there is a fire coming there is one scene when they go out and actually look at the fire and the film almost turns into a horror movie because you see him looking at the fire and the camera moves in toward where the fire and it becomes sort of like something from the inferno doesn't it, it becomes like a, a dante vision of hell and I like that, again, the big picture offset against the small picture. I think the performances are all very well done, and I think it's, it's clearly a passion project. It's clearly something that's made by people who care about the storytelling. But for me, the thing that really, that really made it work was that balance of big picture and small picture, of big sky and tiny detail, which I thought worked really well, and the sense of somebody lost in a world that is bigger than they understand. And it was a point that we referenced with Kerry Mulligan... Uh, delicately yes. uh, on the show last week. And that is that, that I said, I don't want to give anything away, but the, I thought the final shot was very beautiful. And she said, yes, that final image that you see is where Paul Dano started the film. That was his opening image. That's what he wanted to, to, to build it. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's a lovely way to finish. Yeah, I mean, it is, you quite often see, it is... When films finish in that way, of course it makes sense that you would do that. So that was the first shot that they shot. It was either the first thing they shot or it was certainly the first image that he had when he was assembling the, the yeah. work that he wanted to direct. Did you like the film? I did like the film very much, yes. do you th- Do you think it will struggle to find an audience? Yes, yes, probably, but hopefully Kerry Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal between them will make people intrigued enough to go and, and sit with it. Because it's very low-key. Yes, it's slow-burning. Yeah, yeah. Although there is no of... pun intended, no. but that's very good because that's exactly what the fires are doing. The fires are slow burning in. So um, have, I got, have I got time very quickly to do Wairu? Yes, you have. Okay, which is, again, another anthology film. I was talking before about an anthology film and saying that one of the problems with them is that what happens is you often get, you know, you get a collection of different stories that are you know, maybe connected thematically. And there are ones that you like and ones that you don't, and ones that are up and ones that are down. So this is an anthology film, uh, New Zealand, set, eight stories made by eight Maori women directors and writers. And their producers gave them restrictions in the same way that Lars von Trier, when he was making The Five Obstructions, uh, gave restrictions to was it Jürgen Leith. And he said, um, you know, these are the things, you, you must go and film it over here, or you must do this and come together. So the restrictions here were, each film's got to be 10 minutes long. Each film must be one shot, although edits were apparently employed, but it must look as if it's one shot. Each film must play out in real time, starting at the same time in the morning, 9.59 turning into 10 o'clock. Each film must centre on a different... Marry woman, and each film must be connected to the death of a child which haunts the community and haunts the narrative and the voice of which we hear at the beginning and, and the end and What it then becomes is this sort of multi layered look at a tragedy and the effect that the tragedy is having both within an insular community and outside of that community. And with each of the different stories, and they are very, very different in tone, they're very different um, in the way in which they're, they're visually depicted, although they have those, those key things about it's going to be one shot, it's going to play out in real time, so all these stories that are happening concertine and simultaneously. There are moments in it which are particularly strong there is one section about um, a teenage girl confronting men in her community about their silence there's another one about um, a news reporter confronting a shock jock who has very racist views of uh, child abuse I think that worked sort of slightly less well but what I really liked about this and I think it is a a very very brave and important piece of filmmaking is it has a cumulative power it is a film in which a number of different voices are united by a single artistic purpose and it uses the multi You know, the multi angles on the single story to make something that actually pulls together, even though the stories intersect sometimes only tangentially and sometimes, you know, in a way which is so sort of elliptical that you don't initially realise how they are connecting up. The whole thing itself, it's like a kind of celebration of cooperative filmmaking. It's a number of different voices all doing different stories, but somehow coming together to tell the same story. And it's called Waru. Uh, this has been a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Thanks for listening. And, Mark, your movie of the week is...? You know, I'm really torn, and I'm going to do something which I wouldn't normally do. Go on. Bross, When the Screaming Stops. <laughs> Yeah, I'm my lips. Tip
2: Who knows, who knows how long I've loved you. You know, you might know always, always will. will. <laughs> if it take a lifetime, if you ask me to, I will. And when at first I saw you, I didn't know your name, but it ever really mattered
1: It's terrible. <laughs> that is, you know you know when you said have you ever listened to the record and the answer was no I just looked at the I looked at the front okay. cover. Can we do the time warp and pretend it's him? Yeah. Instead? But you did uh, you did check it out, didn't you? That the Radio 2 thing says that the time warp is by Tim Curry, but it ain't. Yeah, but the thing Tim is Tim Curry not in Time Warp. But the thing is shock. If you keep saying it and if it's still labeled as uh, in 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 the fullness of time that's what it'll be. With apologies to Everyone else what so basically, if you keep saying something for long enough, it will become true, I think so, and it, it's the Goebbels principle you just say it long and loud enough, and it, okay well, I'll go along with it that's what it's known as is that is that the Goebbel's principle? it is yeah, okay, a mine of information you have to say, bros. Goebbels, all in the same head. Yeah, I'm very disappointed that you're not in the Bros documentary. In, 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 in retrospect, uh, now that it's movie of the week, so am I. Also, I should say it's you know it's 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 out on DVD almost immediately as well. So um you okay. know it's a very it's a very so I'm I'm being slightly facetious, but I just really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, well, well done to all involved because it sounds because it could have been dreadful, could have been absolutely shocking. Yeah, except it isn't. <laughs> no, it just... but, I mean, the key thing is like is is from our correspondent who said. I mean, often with those music documentaries, if you're a fan of the band or the artist, yeah. then fine. Otherwise, forget it. But yeah. clearly it just sounds as though it's, there's enough human interest in there to take you along whatever age you are. Yeah, there is. And it's put together in a way that... I mean, honestly, the screening I was in, I've sat in a lot of critic screenings of comedy movies in which there was less laughter than there was in Bros uh, after the screaming stops. Uh, before we do a DVD of the week, we've had a, another email from Bethany Kalinix. Okay, um, I'll stick with that pronunciation for the moment. Simon Mark, I would like to apologise. I've been on holiday and therefore got behind on the podcast. Whilst listening to the 27th of September episode earlier this week, I realised that not only did you read out my comment, but it discussed my name at length and I missed it. So, sorry, but I'd like to point out you, that you pronouncing it was wrong. Uh, it's Kalinic and it's Croatian and not Kalinix, okay. the way uh, I said it, obviously. Yes, OK. Um, it's Croatian and it... it It's got to me via Hungary and Bolton. I'd also like to point out... What, the name or the...? The the name. I'd like to point out that Sanjeev pronounced it correctly whilst you were on the cruise, but... Yeah, okay, fine, but it's like, you know, he's just doing the one week. Exactly. Week in, week out. (laughs) We have to... Dano? Dano? I said that Bethany Clinic sounded like an osteopath because clinic sounds like a clinic. Anyway... Uh, Yes, unfortunately I'm not an osteopath. I am, however, a Pilates enthusiast. Ah! Now, where do you stand on Pilates? I would be more than happy to produce a Pilates-based fitness DVD for the Christmas market... In which, one can do a, in which one can do Pilates at home whilst listening to the edited highlights of the podcast. We could even do a warm-up to the wassailing song. I'm sure Mark would make an excellent contributor to the DVD. I would also be willing to fill the role of fitness instructor on the yearly cruise, uh, should that role be available for applicants. Anyway, thanks for the mention. Love the show. Look forward to my cruise contract coming through in the post. That's from Bethany. Uh, let's just get this one. Kalinich, Bethany Kalinich. Uh, via Hungary, Bolton and, and Croatian. <laughs> so uh, where do I stand on Pilates? Yes. Well, I did it for quite a long period of time. I know there was a pun in there as well. Where do you stand on Pilates? Oh, I see. Thank you very much. Very good. Yeah, thank you. I, it does a lot of people a lot of good. Yeah, I know. I think Pilates is great. In the end, I, I opted for gym membership over Pilates. <laughs> did you? But, um... <laughs> I told you that thing that Kirsty Walk said it was when we were doing The Passion of the Christ, you know, the Mel Gibson mm-hmm. film on... um on uh, Newsnight Review, back when Newsnight Review existed. It was the one that was on, you know, 11 o'clock after the news on, on Friday night. And he walks, she said, she said, I'm just terrified that I'm going to read that auto cue and I'm going to say Pontius Pilates. Which is very good. It <laughs> is very good. Um, So are we done? We've got DVD of the week coming up. Yeah, have you got DVD. anything else to say? No, I've done the movies. That's so fine. You've now. been very good though. I've more than earned my keep. You absolutely have. Uh, so here we go. It's our favourite moment. It's DVD of the week. Ha, 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 Hey, Mark. Hey, Simon. One of the choices for DVD of the week this week is McKellen, Playing the Part. Playing the Part. He's a top bloke, innit? He owns a pub called The Grapes on on Limehouse Reach in East London, frequented by none other than Charles Dickens. The pub features in the opening chapter of Charles Dickens' novel Our Mutual Friend. Which reminds me, did you know that A Tale of Two Cities was serialised in two Midlands newspapers? Go on. I'm going to set this up so that you really, really take notice. OK, all right, go on. Did you know that A Tale of Two Cities it's was serialised in two, two Midlands, two Midlands newspapers. newspapers? It was the Bicester Times, it was the Worcester Times. <laughs> I'd say class. <laughs> are there many Dickens jokes that are that good? I suspect not anyway that's very good this week's other so, yeah best of Times best of the times. times this week's other because it helps if you always repeat the puns yeah it is this always funnier the second time round other releases include Swimming with Men The Last Waltz, Incredibles 2 Lucky and Hotel Artemis Martin Johnson says that's a top quality sly double bill First Blood is a genuinely exciting and affecting film and Cliffhanger is preposterous fun with a great villain and terrifying opening scene which is true Chris Jones Lucky I think. Okay, all that happens is one old man falls over and another one loses his tortoise. But. (laughs) That's like the reductive film criticism. So, for a film about mortality, it's strangely life affirming. (laughs) Scott Forbes, it has to be Incredibles 2. It's in my top five films of the year and is much better than the original. And Hal Kitchen, Lucky is one of my favourite movies of 2018, so an easy pick for the new release, <coughs> a wonderfully small film full of sincerity and humanism, funny and profoundly affecting. Uh, for the reissue, I'm going to go with First Blood because I've just read Susan Jeffords' book Hard Bodies and it got me wanting to see it again and the f- last five minutes are up there with the last five minutes of Captain Phillips for some of the best acting you'll ever see. But what is our DVD of... What is? In it? You went on in it. What is okay. it? Well, um, I think I'm definitely going to go for Lucky. I love Incredibles 2. I absolutely love Incredibles 2, but I think Lucky needs the push rather than... And also on the basis of a man falls over and someone loses his tortoise. The someone who loses his tortoise is David Lynch. And it's, right. and it's very... That's very, very funny. And on the reissues, I'm going to go for The Last Waltz, the Master of cinema series, because I love The Last Waltz. I went to see it three consecutive days at the Odeon Swiss Cottage when it first came out and I had never heard anything by the band before, and I'd never liked Bob Dylan before. Um, I knew Joni Mitchell, but that was it, and I just thought it was just brilliant. And, of course, once again, it brings everything full circle because The Last Waltz is the film that gives us This Is Spinal Tap, and This Is Spinal Tap is, in many ways, the film that gives us Bross after the screaming stops, which is also out on DVD on Monday. Right, OK, um, and I am now going to tie... That, how well I did that. Beautiful, beautifully constructed, properly thought through... I'm now going to tidy up the studio, put things away. I'm just mentioning that because if Robbie Savage is listening, we tidied up after you, OK? Everything, Computers left on, there were drinks here, there was toast, there was a plate, I mean, it was... Are you being serious? I am being serious. There was actually toast in the studio. There was uh, toast crumbs and a and a bit of butter for the... Th- anyway. A bit of butter Oi, for bread. Robbie, t- just clear up after. Yeah, I tell you what you should do. You should set... Simon Bates used to leave a mess in his studio as well. Anyway. You should set Rory Cuthen Jones on him because Rory Cuthen Jones was the person who, who upbraided me for eating a sandwich in the studio. You know, I said I don't, I, I, I take my rubbish home with me. Exactly. What's he got to do exactly. with him? Who? Rory. No, I want Rory to get after Rob Savage. Is he like the caretaker? Rory? Is that what he is? He's caretaker of New Broadcasting You know when he House? does that, when he stands outside when we're on air and he stands out and he starts, he t- takes, takes a, takes a, takes a cheeky snapshot. Yeah, maybe that's he what he's doing. He's, he's. None of that technology correspondence stuff. He's just the caretaker <laughs> going around clearing up after people and grumbling, saying, Turn that light out. <laughs> anyway, well, it's you, the ARP he's the warden. ARP warden now, dad's well, army. He'd make a very good that ARP was warden. very good. What was his name? Bill Pertwee? Yeah. Yes, that's right. We're, sorry, stupid question. Was he related to John Pertwee? Uh, brother, according to the puppet master, uh, brother, brother of. Okay. Yeah. That all very, these years how never how about had... that you know, there we go that's perfectly answered okay um, so we're going to finish with Leo Sayer then because we were talk- ah, we were talking about Gretna Green Gretna Green and in Moonlighting there's a reference to the Blue Morris Van is parked in an alley just by Montague Street and he, Leo Sayer is in Shoreham says, and that's yeah. in Worthing Fine. and the uh, the Mexican discotheque is uh, is also in Worthing but then the reference to getting married and where they're, they're running away from their yeah. parents and here's here's the bit here's the bit, here's the
2: bit okay here. The have a message That Mrs Park's daughter is missing Meanwhile the car turn off the M6 motorway oh, well, I'm Drinking cold black car M6 Very specific hakes. She stares at him With his beard unshaved Wonders at his power staying, staying away yeah. He whispers slow Ooh. You did just fine They shared the driving oh. All through <laughs> yeah, the night yeah. She laughs My mother will have lost her mind Yes, why? Wow.
1: Ten miles to Gretna. Very cool. good. Wow, we got there. That was great. What was funny is people watching this, people listening to this, won't see you lifting your finger every... This bit. Every time, that bit. No, no. It's, it's, it's that bit. It's that bit. It's that bit. There's that, 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 that bit. It's that bit. It was very specific about the turnoff of the M6. Yeah. Great song. Really, really good song. Leo, say sat-nav next, I think. I think so. By the I way, Bill, per- Bill Pertwee is not John Pertwee's brother. No, obviously, you, that was just you were a joke. It was just you were a lied joke. To. We were joking, distant cousin or something like that. Just distant cousin. The thing is, you don't know, right? It's like broadcast news. He says it there. You say it. You Actually, here. No, Bill Pertwee was Tim Curry's cousin, and they <laughs> and together they performed on the Time Warp. That's the truth of it. Yeah. You fake kn- news. You know that that's not do you. Please don't use that expression. OK, sorry about that. It's anyway, like thank you, you so a much. a little bit of nastiness into, the, into the world. For downloading another fabulous podcast from BBC Sounds. Yeah, or wherever you downloaded it from. Yeah, or, yeah, you might... No, we don't... No, only BBC Sounds. Only BBC only Sounds. BBC Nowhere Sounds. else. You didn't get it from anywhere else, mm. and if you did, shame on you. Yeah, no, if you did, go and download it from BBC Sounds again. well. result
0: corporate boy corporate boy (laughs) honestly